I've um, my wife just bought me some uh, some cappuccino uh, mugs now that fit under the spout properly. So I've, I've actually made myself a cappuccino rather than a latte, which is very subtle but still close enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm buzzing. I'm wide. If my fingertips are tingling, does that mean I've had too much coffee? Anyhow. <laughs> that might mean you've had too much coffee. <laughs> I think I crossed the line. Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Lynda.com. Lynda.com is the easy and affordable way to learn where you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots and lots more. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or tweak your Photoshop skills. Visit lynda.com pragmatic to feed your curious mind and to get a free 10-day trial. There's something for everyone, so if you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? This episode of Pragmatic is also sponsored by Sapient Pair and their iOS app, Shopee. Shopee is a collaborative shopping list app that's simple and easy to use with great features like pocket lock, smart ordering, and real-time collaborative updating. Shopping lists aren't to-do lists, and Shopee just doesn't just help organize your shopping list items, but it also helps you shopping from start to finish. It's free on the iOS app store, so check it out at sapientpair, that's S-A-P-I-E-N-T-Pair, as in two, dot com slash pragmatic for more information. And we'll talk about those sponsors um, a little bit more during the show. Uh, I'm your host, John Gigi, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Vic Hudson. How's it going, Vic? It's going good, John. How are you? I'm going very well, thank you. Um, to, today we have short a... Short show today? Short show, yes. This is going to be a short show. The shortest. <laughs> um, I have never prepared more for an episode. I have never um, had a topic that is this... Um, complicated to cover and it's actually the most highly voted uh, most popular topic when we had the topic voting up on the site uh, it was the number one request for fans and seeing as how this is the second last episode of Pragmatic it seems only fair as a final um, thank you to the fans of the show that I cover off the most popular topic on the list uh, and that topic is how the internet works which is a very broad kind of topic. It's kind of a lot to it. There's a lot of pieces. So I'm not going to... um, I'm just going to dive in because let's face it, if I don't get started, I'll be here for hours. In fact, I probably will be here for hours. So strap yourself in for a short show. Are you ready, Vic? I am ready. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Okay. So I want to cover the evolution but of the internet, but I want to take it step by step. So when the blocks come together, that they sort of make sense. There are a few fair warnings at the beginning. Okay. There are a lot, there are a lot of acronyms that I'm going to be mentioning in this episode. Don't blame me, please blame every other geek in the world that invented this stuff and thought acronyms made things sound cool. Okay. Cause I don't know. There's just a lot of acronyms in this stuff. I don't get it. Whatever. 
<sighs> As I said, it's going to be a short show. Brace yourself. I'm not going to go down to the voltage level. Okay, I'm not going to talk about Manchester encoding and blah, 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 blah. I'm only interested in the key points. And there are a lot of key points, but I'm trying to help form a clearer picture as to how it works conceptually. So I'm not going to talk about plus minus five volts signaling. I'm not going to talk about TTL level. I'm not going to talk about any of the actual lowest possible level, hardware level, this voltage, this current, you know, that's a current loop. That isn't, you know, I'm not going to talk about that level because the problem is that honestly, I just don't think that there's as much value in that. That said, you know, electrical engineer the electronics background of course that stuff is of interest and I could talk about it but I honestly think that you know let's just draw the line and, and say we're going to deal with the levels above that so no lower I'm also not going to talk about every single possible permutation combination of every standard that there ever was I'm only covering the ones that have historical significance and I'm only covering those uh, that have influenced where we are to where we where we are now and how we've got to where we are now, and I think most importantly as well, the ones that are currently in use. So, and I'm not going to do comparatives um, between different technologies. I'm so hopefully by observing those rules, we'll get through this before we all die. Lovely. Okay, history. Got to start with history. So, uh, Leonard Kleinrock at MIT, July 1961. He published a paper on packet switching and later a book on the same subject, that was in 1964. Now, up until that time, data between computers was transferred pretty much uh, point to point, and it wasn't actually transferred, it was transferred as a serial data stream. Now, the thing, as is the case with a lot of inventions, you know, people say, oh, the Wright brothers invented flying and all that sort of stuff, and you know, whether that's true or not, I guess, I suppose it is true, but kind of, but there was a bunch of other people working on it at the same time, as was the case with packet data and packet switching concepts and packet switch networks. So MIT, RAND, NPL, they were all developing very similar packet networking concepts in parallel during the 60s. But the name packet was actually coined from NPL's work. Now, a guy called, um, sorry, I shouldn't say guy, it's a group of people. So you got Bolt, Berenek and Newman, BBN, it's the name of a company. They won a tender in 1968 to build the first ever interface message processor, or what we would come to refer to as an Ethernet switch. So 1968. And the actual first uh, models of that were used in something called uh, ARPAN, ARPANET. I always seem to say that wrong, ARPANET. Anyway, and that was actually developed and implemented at UCLA in late 1969. So that was really the first recognized computer network using packet switching and what would become Ethernet switches. Now, there's a long, long history of, of ARPANET, the people involved. I don't want to go into all of the details, but some key points along the way. So NCP, uh, Network Communications Protocol, that was the predominant networking standard uh, on, uh, on the early ARPANET. And it managed mm -hmm. essentially how the packets were handled and directed through the network. So NCP, that was the... That, so there is... We haven't got to TCP yet, okay? So a guy called Ray Tomlinson wrote the first program to read and send what they originally... Um, the, the, the term email wasn't coined until a few years later, but electronic mails. That was in 1972, and that was using uh, the ARPANET. 
So it was first defined, TCP to the transmission control protocol was first defined in 1974. Uh, and by 1978, the first form of internet protocol or IP, as you know, we've come to call it, uh, was completed. The resulting standard was called TCP IP, which is the standard that the internet is essentially built on. Now, the thing is that despite the fact those standards were in place by the late 70s, they, well, so the, I should say the standards were written, drafted and existed. Implementations took a few more years to sort of trickle out. So it wasn't actually until uh, 1983 that the ARPANET had actually switched their entire system to TCP IP. And on the ARPANET, at least, uh, NCP had died. There were still other fledgling networks around and, and so on and so forth. But these were all isolated networks, essentially. They started to become more cross-connected during the 80s. Uh -huh. Now, I'm not going to go into every little detail of all of these. I just note them for their historical significance. So, 1981, CSNet, 1982, SMTP, 1983, DNS. Then we skip forward to 1990 for Archie, 1991, World Wide Web, 1993, the Mosaic Web Browser. Some key points along the way, and yes, don't worry, I'm going to go into a lot of these later on. But I thought it'd be Excellent. interesting... <laughs> I thought it'd be interesting before we jump back down to the low level, just to quickly cover off some of the internet-based service, uh, services history. And what people don't realize is that, you know, because you think about ARPANET in the late 70s, you think about um, the 80s and, and uh, the proliferation of TCP IP, but it was pretty raw stuff. There was, it was IP address, there was like DNS, although DNS came around in, in the early 80s, 83 it was, you know, it, implementations of DNS and uh, it, the widespread usage of it and internet services built on all of this stuff really didn't actually become a thing. Uh, like I said, I mean, Archie and the World Wide Web, 1990, 1991, that's when you start to see some of the very basic internet, what we would consider an internet service, you know, started around then. So, uh -huh. okay, IMDB, the Internet Movie Database, 1990. It wasn't until 1995 that we got Craigslist, we got Amazon, and we got eBay. So, 1995. Yeah. So, that's quite a gap. That's, that's a considerable gap when you think about it. Um, for if you want to consider um, ARPANET switching to TCP IP, compare that to when you got Amazon. Yeah, what's that? 13 years? Uh, uh -huh. Hang on. Yeah, 13 years. That's quite a gap. So, 996, Hotmail. Still have my Hotmail account. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, you I had one of those. You had one? Did you let it go? I had one. Uh, yeah. My wife still has hers too. So uh, it's now owned by Microsoft. It became um, Windows Live, and now it's become uh, Outlook. You know, because well, that's just what Microsoft does. You know, buy something and then brand it under the Windows slash Office moniker, right? That's just what they do. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, so that was Hotmail ninety six nineteen ninety eight. Um, PayPal, okay, uh, and then of course the big one, Google search. The Google. Yes, Google, Google. So yeah, 1998 was Google time. And that's when everything really started to accelerate. Um, blame Google. Uh, 2001, 2001, we see our bestest friends, uh, Wikipedia, well oh, often, well linked. And some people would say overlinked in my show notes, but stiff. 2003, <laughs> got a whole bunch of really good ones then. Um, Skype which we're using right now. 
uh, MySpace, which I think is still alive, but mostly dead. LinkedIn, which is regrettably still alive. iTunes, <laughs> yeah, I'm no kidding. I, the iTunes store. Oh, yeah. And of course, a crowd favorite, the Pirate Bay, 2003. R. Exactly. Army Hearties. 2004, Facebook, or as I prefer to call it, Fastbook. Anyway, whatever. 2005, YouTube which apparently makes no money, so I heard recently, whatever. 2006 was Twitter, and 2008, we got Dropbox and Spotify. So, there's been a lot of other services I didn't mention, but I thought it was in, it was interesting to think about the services that we use today and just how far back they go in terms of history. And the funny thing for me is that I use Google Search every day. A lot of people will say, oh yeah, I use DuckDuckGo and I use... I don't know, does anyone use Bing? I guess someone does. Anyway, so all these different people, you know, majority of people still use Google search. That's actually been around for a very long time. A lot of people buy stuff on Amazon. So that's more of a North American thing. People outside North America aren't so big into Amazon simply because Amazon don't have the, you know, all the benefits of the uh, Amazon uh, Prime membership and all that sort of stuff. Doesn't have much benefits in outside the US. But you know, yeah. even so, it's still been around um, now for 20 years. That's pretty impressive. eBay, well, I think we all tolerate eBay. Sometimes we, I still stuff, sell stuff on eBay and once I do that, I swear I'll never use it again. Um, and then I come back two years later and use it again to sell something. So I don't know, I guess I never learned, but whatever. Um, and IMDB, yeah, I use that sometimes. So, But anyway, interesting though, just how far back some of the stuff does and doesn't go. But all this stuff is built on the internet. Without the internet, it wouldn't exist. So that's what can be built on the internet. A little bit of the early history. So now let's talk about how it actually does work. So hopefully appetites are whetted at this point. Let's get connected. Let's get connected. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, let's, let's do that. Okay, so let's start with the beginning, which is a point-to-point -point data connection. So the concept behind a point-to-point -point data connection is mind-bendingly simple. It's just a conversation between two people or two devices. I'm going to raise my hand and say, are you ready to get some information? And the other person is going to say, yes. I'm going to raise my hand and say, yes, I'm ready. Once I see them raise their hand, I'm going to send a bunch of that information continuously. And then I'm going to give them another signal to say, hey, I'm done. You know, I'm going to drop my hand or whatever I'm going to do. And then they're going to say they got it once they got it by nodding or dropping their hand and saying, yes, I got it. And that's pretty much it. A little bit of handshaking, a burst of data, and that's the end. Point-to-point -point serial data communications. So not the difference between serial and parallel. Just note, not talking about that, serial and parallel. Serial data is just that the data is sent consecutively uh, with a common spacing. And sometimes you'll have a clock that uh, you then, you know, sometimes it's self-recovering -reco self clock in high-speed serial, uh, or it's a parallel clock. Either way, you know, you clock the data off and you extract it that way. Whereas a parallel, you'll send a whole bunch of bits all in parallel with a common clock, which has all sorts of other problems. And I've talked about that previously. So, uh, no, I'm not talking about the difference between serial and parallel. I'm talking about um, the basic idea of handshake. Um, here's a continuous stream of data. Uh, and I'll tell you when it begins, I'll tell you when it ends, and you will extract it and then go and do whatever you're going to do with it. So from a con conceptual point of view, that is a basic serial point-to-point uh, -point data communication link. Mm -hmm. um, very few layers to it, not much, not much going on there. And that's the way it all began. 
Um, one of the evolutions along the way before we um, progress to the, the networking idea and packets and everything uh, was an idea of a token ring. Have you ever heard of a token ring uh, system? I've heard the term. Yeah, token rings are something that I've come across in um, in automation systems. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why token rings are good and there's even more reasons why they're bad. But anyway, so like I said, in process automation, I come across them. Some of them are actual genuine token rings. Other ones are hybrids uh, with a, like a master-slave idea. But anyway, um, bottom line is it comes back to guaranteed delivery time and uh, time slots and durations and so on. So you know, co companies like Siemens have, have used this system uh, but they also have uh, their own system called ProfiNet that sits over the top of uh, industrial Ethernet, which is a derivative of the Ethernet standard. But I'm talking more about ProfiBus. And ProfiBus is sort of a hybrid token ring system. And the idea is, think about it like you've got a bunch of devices all connected together, but each device is connected to the next device in a circle. And mm -hmm. uh, each of those connections is a point-to-point -point link, just like we said before. Okay. But yeah, but think of it like uh, the token is like a baton or a talking stick, if you'd like, <laughs> you okay. know. You know when people argue in a big group mm -hmm. and they say, you don't have the talking stick right now, you know, that's my talking oh, stick. God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever heard that one? I mean, I, I kinda, have. Yeah, it's just terrible that we've heard of that, but yeah, okay. So yeah, you can't talk right now. I got the talking stick. So it's kind of like that. So you pass the talking I stick. I thought we were going to talk about the Tolkien ring. <laughs> that's the one ring to rule them all this is the one ring uh -huh. that no one wanted anyhow so yeah as a, mm -hmm, this one doesn't make you disappear it just slows you down so anyhow okay token ring so, <laughs> so device one says here have a token and it's like okay I have the token now and no one else has got it no one else is using it so I'm going to put some data on it device one I want to talk to device three but to get there I've got to go to device two first Okay, so I put that, uh, associate that data and I pass that on to device two. Device two has a look at the, the data with the token. It says, oh, this is not for me. I shall pass it on to the next bloke. Pass it on to the next one and the next one opens it. It's device three. Oh, great. I'm the intended recipient and it pulls out the data and does what it's going to do with it. And it may have a response for device one to say, hmm, pff, I really didn't like your data or whatever it does. Who cares? Point is, that's the way a token ring works. You get one so this person. Is a, a hardware linked list then. Yeah, sort of, kind of, kind of, sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's The idea is that um, it's the ultimate in data control. You got one person at a time and mm -hmm. one person, one device at a time, and the data gets passed around. And there's all sorts of permutations and improvements to the token ring system. But honestly, it, it the implementation really... It can get more complicated, but it ultimately died because Ethernet, in some senses, it's more complicated, but Ethernet in many respects is simpler. Uh, and and uh, kind of it's the ubiquity because of Ethernet's inevitable low, lower cost uh, one out. Because if, if I recall correctly, Token Ring was uh, driven primarily by IBM and, uh, and Ethernet was a bit more open. I think that may have been part of it as well, but ultimately, uh, packet switching uh, won. Token Ring still used a lot in automation because it will give you a guaranteed delivery time, which is very important in process automation. You know that you're always going to get a response because the token can only sit with you for a certain amount of time before you've got to pass it on. So that means you've got a guaranteed delivery time, whereas Ethernet, that is not the case. So gotcha. it's, yeah, so that means that you essentially have uh, a bunch of IO out in the field. 
and you need to know that that input you're going to get data from that that uh, you know that bank of I/O out in the field. You're going to get that in the next 50 milliseconds. Well, it's important that you get that message in that time frame. So you know it's 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 important in automation, but it's not so important in computer networks where you can have random variable lag, piece together the packets and resequence them and uh, reconstruct the data, and you're all good. So you know it's not. Yeah. Anyway, so ultimately Ethernet. Uh, Ethernet one out over token ring. So token ring still exists, but it's very, very, well, it's just not popular. So anyway, okay. So before we uh, talk about um, Ethernet networks and, and so on and so forth, I think it was it's helpful to talk about another point-to-point -point link. Uh, and that is the, essentially, okay, in the beginning, computers, personal computers in particular, let's focus on them for a second. Personal computers were didn't have a network card because, you know, you, you what would you need Ethernet for? Yeah, even though when uh, VIC-20 existed, uh, networks existed and, um, you know, the original coaxial networks like 10 base 5 and so on, all, all those things existed. But, you know, networking computers was, oh, why would you do that, you know? It was something uh -huh. that only universities would do that had not lots of data to share. And home home computers had, you know, there was no internet really to connect to. You could dial in perhaps, I guess, modems did exist, but they were point-to-point -point links. So, yeah, you had BBSs and all these other bits and bobs, which I'm not really going to talk about. But the point is that, you know, computers had no network interface cards. The way you would connect to anything, um, you know, on the internet, when the internet came about, really, um, that was uh, through a modem. And modems would connect to your device, your computer, uh, usually via serial port. Usually it was RS-232. Eventually that, you know, there were some that connected through parallel ports. But generally speaking, uh, eventually that, that became USB. But by the time that was happening, everything was moving towards Ethernet and, you know, you know getting towards Wi-Fi routers and, you know, to where we are mm -hmm. today. So in the beginning, though, you know, like I said, my, my the first computer in our household of VIC-20, it had no networking capability at all. And uh, our first PC had a dial-up modem, and it was a um, oh geez, it was a nineteen point two k dial-up modem. And uh, oh, that was know, blazing! Oh, it was blazing fast! Oh yeah, um, <laughs> that was that was using compression, man. Anyhow, so uh, so yeah, and a lot of early uh, companies and users just didn't see the internet as being useful. You know, it seems yeah. crazy now, but going thinking back. You know, everyone's like said, shrug, internet, what's the big deal? And think about it, you know, back then in this, well, I'm talking about the, like the late 80s, early 90s. So you'd buy your compact or your gateway or your whatever the hell, and you'd, you'd, you'd have a modem, you could dial dial into an internet, into the internet, but there wasn't much out there. You know, what, what, do you, what is there out there on the internet? Yeah, you had horrible search engines, you know, that uh -huh. didn't, didn't find very much because there wasn't much to find. The majority of people using them were, you know, research and universities. You know, the average person with a personal computer at home had no real use for it. So it didn't become, um, you know, all that useful. And I think that a lot of that, a lot of the problems were that um, the data rates, okay. so like the data rates start out being very slow. Okay, coming yeah. back to, and I, the problem with this conversation is that it's hard to know where to start. Yeah. So imagine you buy yourself a computer. You've got to use a dial-up modem. How do you connect? You need an internet service provider. And mm -hmm. internet service providers, you know, let's let's go back to America Online, for example. And there were hundreds of thousands of ISPs and you would dial into them. You'd, they'd give you a phone number, you would dial in and you would connect. 
after the <laughs> modems would negotiate. Uh, and they would agree on a speed and then you would be connected to their network. And there, the ISP's uh, location was then connected through switches to the internet. We'll talk about how later. The point is that that dial-up connection was done over a phone line. And yep. that's because that's all we had. There were no mobile phones. You know, uh, ADSL hadn't really been invented at that point. I mean, I think theoretically perhaps, but, you know, the whole asynchronous, you know, digital subscriber line concepts and the, the, the filtering and everything, none of that existed. It was just an analog phone line through an analog uh-huh. telephone exchange. God knows how many telephone exchanges you pass through between your house and the internet service provider could be on the other side of town. You know, you just don't know. And it could, there could be yeah. three telephone exchanges between you and they're all analog, you know? So that uh-huh. was what you're up against. So the amount of noise you know, analog noise on those phone lines is terrible, just terrible, you know? So that's why these modems, they started out at really low bit rates because they had to operate in high noise environments. So they started out with uh-huh. 1,200, then it was 2,400 board, you know, you know, board, you know, bits per second, right? And then uh-huh. then things started to accelerate. You got 9,600 board, or, you know, oh, let's put a point in there. We're going to start pulling 9.6 kilo, kilobits per second, kiloboards. Oh, yeah, now we're talking. And like I said, our first one was 19.2K. I mean, I had a TNC modem, you know, for, for amateur radio that was 1,200 boards. So, you know, but that's another yeah. story. I'm not talking about that because that's packet radio and no one did packet radio or hardly anyone did comparatively speaking. So, let's not worry about that. So, what changed though is that some of the back end improved. More information from more people saw seeing the benefit of the internet was added all around the world and suddenly it became a more interesting place to be. So more demand meant that there needed to be faster ways to connect to uh-huh. get more of this data. And that led to more ideas. Well, there was a proliferation at that time for a bunch of other efficiency reasons away from analog exchanges to digital exchanges, ones where all the circuit switching was done digitally. And it started out in the back end, the high density, you know, switching between exchanges uh, and then eventually it moved its way out into the suburbs so that your suburban telephone exchanges were essentially just a uh, an analog line from the nearest telephone exchange to your home. And that was it. Everything else was digital. So as soon as it came into the telephone exchange, it was digitized and away you go. So that meant it was then possible to start mounting uh, essentially internet-specific equipment at the actual telephone exchanges. And mm-hmm. that allowed... Uh, that allowed the uh, internet service providers to say, okay, well, now we can cut out all the switching loss and all this other analog to digital losses. We can actually um, just, you know, use this, la- the, the so- they call it the last mile, right? It's not, yeah. it's not, a, it's not a mile, you know, a, a last kilometer, if you want to call it a last kilometer, whatever. You know, it, what it means is it's the distance from the telephone exchange to your house and whatever that distance is. It could be, you know, 100 feet, it could be 10,000 feet. Hopefully not 10,000 feet. That's a long way. But, you know, it could be a long way. And the the point was that because you're only dealing with that last bit, it cuts down the amount of noise that the phone line can pick up significantly. And it allows you to use ADSL. So we start out with ADSL 1, then that progressed to a new standard ADSL 2, and then ADSL 2 Plus. And everyone goes and says, oh, ADSL 2 Plus, yeah, it's fantastic. You can get tens megabits per second. And it's like, yeah, that's great, provided you're living next to the damn telephone exchange. As soon as you're more than yeah. a few hundred feet feet away, yeah, good luck. So, and the problem with that is, of course, that um, there's only so much data you can push down a twisted pair um, cable over a significant distance. 
And the reason why is, is straightforward enough, and that is that uh, digital information on, off. All right, da voltage goes on, voltage goes off. Current goes on, current goes off. All of those switching transients are governed by inductance and capacitance in the cable. The, the larger the inductance, the larger the capacitance, the more difficult it is for those pulses to actually maintain their shape by the time they get to the other end. So the further you go down, the more capacitance inductive effect Therefore, the more, more, more rounded the edges become, the more difficult it is to detect whether or not that is actually a one or a zero. And that is a gross oversimplification. I'm excluding quadrature amplitude modulation. I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm not even talking about QPSK. Oh my goodness, all that other stuff, different modulation methods and so on and so forth. But that's the basic idea. Capacitance inductance is your enemy because the transmission lines that were laid down were never intended for for digital information. They're intended for an analog phone call and they do that job just fine. So we go and put ADSL hardware out there in the telephone exchanges and then people can connect with an ADSL modem instead of a dial-up modem and that means that you're always connected because there's nothing to dial in to connect to. You're always connected. So you're not yeah. dialing in through a telephone exchange anymore. Technically, you're going to... Uh, essentially, you're superimposing digital information over the top of your analog phone line. It only goes to the exchange and then that digital information is stripped off and sent digitally through the backbones back to the ISP. So you're cutting out all that noise, but at the same time, there's still limitations to how fast you can go. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously, there's also cable modems, and nowadays we have fiber optics. And fiber optics is digital all the way, but most people do not have fiber optic into their homes, uh, you know, globally speaking. Certainly not in our, certainly not in my country, and frankly, certainly not even in the United States. It's becoming no. more common. But I mean, I don't know what the statistics are, but I guarantee you the vast majority of homes do not have it. I'd be yeah. interested to know what the number is, actually. But Yeah, I'd be interested too. I'd I'd guess that most of the most of the people are connected in this country via a cable modem or, or DSL. Yeah, exactly right. And it's the same as the case here. And some people are unfortunate enough to have to deal with satellite and all the lag that goes with that and the and the low bandwidths and all that stuff. So the uh, more modern approach uh, has been to utilize uh, the cellular networks. So where there are, uh, where there is no a, no analog phone connection, which you could mm -hmm. put potentially ADSL on, uh, and there's no cable because you know not everywhere gets cable. You can just use a three G network or the four G network. I mean, why not LTE? You know that's pretty damn that's screaming fast. Of course, the problem with that is it's a shared network, a shared uh, a shared um, medium, which means that uh, ADSL, dial-up, uh, cable modems, all of those things are a dedicated connection between mm -hmm. the exchange and you, whereas 3G and 4G is shared by anyone who can speak to that to that mobile phone tower slash sector in the cell mm -hmm. that you're talking on. So that means that it's not just you using it. Depends on where you are, and it's down to luck. So, you know, yeah. depending on how, just do you feel lucky? Anyhow... I really don't do a very good Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so, I got it. You get it. Okay, cool. All right. So during this transition where speeds on the, on, at the client connection start to evolve, something else happens. As the bandwidth increases, the, the amount of information available on the internet increases, more devices, because the average cost of devices in the home is reducing. Mm -hmm. So no longer is it... Do you have a computer in your household in the 80s and you'd be, you know, one in 10 people maybe put their hand up? Do you have a computer in your household in the 90s? Two or three or four or five people put their hands up. 
Now, we're in the noughts, the 2000s, as in last decade. How many people have one computer in their house? Every hand goes up. How many people have two, three, four computers in their house? More hands go up. You know what I'm saying? So, Mm -hmm. suddenly, it's no longer just about a point-to-point link. It's about, okay, I have one phone line into this house. I got one internet connection to this house, but I've got multiple devices. How do I deal with this problem? So that's when the proliferation of home private networks started to happen and modems ceased to be just modems and they had to evolve by implementing another functionality that existed in enterprise networks for quite some time and that's routing. Before we talk about routing though, it's important also to just quickly mention that some operating systems supported internet connection sharing. Mm-hmm. So you could have a dial-up modem connected to you know, your computer, which would be your internet-connected computer. And then what you'd do is you'd share your internet connection with the other computers on your network. And they would, quote-unquote, automatically figure it out. Some of them were less automatic than others. I'm not naming names, Windows. But I had problems, and <laughs> your problems became my problems, and enough said. So, yeah, I was really glad that internet connection sharing died Uh, and was replaced by a genuine router because let's face it, a router actually works far more reliably. So Yeah. Yeah. I never had good luck with the internet connection sharing. No, I don't think too many people did. It sort of kind of occasionally worked, but, you know, it was a pain in the neck. And, of course, the problem was you had to leave that computer on all the time. So if you wanted other net computers in the network, then your internet connected sharing computer had to be on and awake. It couldn't go to sleep and all this other rubbish. It was a pain in the neck. So thankfully... Uh, modems evolved and they then started to incorporate routing functionality and that allows multiple devices to access the same internet connection because the modem is always on so by incorporating the router into the modem all of the computers then connect to the router slash modem and that gives them all access to the same internet connection so they then share that internet connection so everyone's happy mm-hmm. well until of course you have you know kids and then the kids suck all the bandwidth and then you're left with nothing you can't even have a Skype phone call and that's such a first world problem. But anyhow, okay, with me so far? I'm here. You're here? Oh, I'm okay. Here. Does that imply that you're with me so far? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. Ay, ay, ay. So, scratching the surface here. So much to cover. Okay. So, do, 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 do. ISPs uh, essentially then provide you that point to point connection uh, into your house. And then once it's in your house, you have an Ethernet connection of some kind. And of course, traditionally, it was a wired Ethernet connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, more often than not these days, it's now Wi-Fi, a wireless uh, Ethernet connection. And you have your own little private network in your house and your own little private party. So once, once your modem router has connected to the ISP's network, they then route your packets to wherever they may need to go. However, uh... There's one other little thing to talk about on ISPs before we uh, before we change the subject. And I say change the subject. It's all the same subject, but you know what I mean. Same sub-subject. Yeah. Sub, sub, sub Is sub-subject a word? Anyway. ISPs. One of their problems is they have a bank of IP addresses that they have to dole out to people that connect to their system. Mm-hmm. They have a fixed number, so they've got to manage them carefully. You know, they be miserly about it to go to some kind of a you know, rationale reason. So there's two flavors. There's the fixed IP, which everyone says they want, but they don't probably need. And there's the dynamic IP address. 
Yeah, it's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Fixed IP means I'm going to log in as me, John Chiji, to the ISP, and they're going to say, oh, hey, John, here's your IP, same as always. Hope you're happy. Give me an extra 10 bucks a month. <laughs> it's like, yeah, pretty much. It just sounds like... It's, 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 but that's ten bucks. I mean, do I, I mean, come on, man. It's just a fixed IP. Anyway, dynamic one says, "Oh, hey John, it's you. Yeah, because you're stingy and you're cheap. <laughs> you can keep your ten bucks a month, but you ain't getting that same IP address. What's that? It's still the same as last week. Yeah, whatever. Maybe it won't be, but maybe it will be. Anyway, so they just get a big bucket and they just pick whatever number they want out of the bucket. So that mm-hmm. reuse of IP addresses." That the dynamic method meant that the ISPs can allocate whatever they like to you from a pool and it's just easier and it's more efficient, theoretically. And perhaps it's more of a tradition thing. Honestly, I feel like the days of dynamic IP addresses are kind of over to an extent because if you think about it, it makes sense when you've got a lot of people connecting and disconnecting all the time. Yeah. But with always on internet connections, so my ADSL is always connected. Unless, of course, you know, power goes out or the modem dies or someone pulls out the cable from the back of the modem or, you know, insert reason here that is not a common occurrence. Generally speaking, yeah. I connect to my ISP and I'm going to have the same connection up for days, weeks, maybe even months. Now they and can't... if they reach max capacity, it's going to become a de facto fixed IP anyway. Exactly. So my pool, as 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 more and as a larger percentage or proportion, if you want to think about it, of my of my dynamic pool become always on connections, it ceases to become a dynamic pool that can be reused. You know, all it becomes is a highly defragmented pool of IP addresses, of which there's very little point in reusing them. So. You know, it's. I find it. It's it, when you had dial-ups, a dial-up modem. It made absolutely great sense. Or when you had a handful of people, not a handful, but a relatively small proportion of people with with uh, with uh, always on internet connections. I think it made sense. But I'm. I think it just makes less and less sense these days. And I really don't get, know where they get off charging ten bucks a month extra for a fixed IP address. So, even if you had a dynamic IP address. And just by the way, for the record, I have a dynamic IP address because I'm stingy. No, actually, although maybe I am stingy, but the point is I don't need one and I know I don't need one. So for a very long time, there were a bunch of services that were around that could get help you around this problem. Maybe you've heard of one of, the, of one or two of them. I'm going to mention the one I used to use. That was D-O-I-N-D-N-S. Heard of them? Um, I think so, yeah. Okay. D-Y-N-D-N-S, short for dynamic DNS. Yeah, I what? use those. I use yeah. them. Yeah. So I, I used... thought that was who it was. Yes. So D-Y-N... I, I ran a uh, hobby web server several years back, and that's that's what I used to negotiate. Cool. Yes. So um, I used D-Y-N-D-N-S um, for quite a while, and it was a free service for quite a while. But like so many free services, they realized, hey, we could make money from this, and it seems to be a free service. I mean, I could always pay a nominal amount, but I stopped needing it and I stopped bothering with it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, which we will get to later on in the episode. Don't worry. But for the moment, let's assume that you have to have an, a publicly known, externally externally uh, available IP address in order for you to essentially connect back into your home system when you're out and mm-hmm. about. That would be a use for an IP address. If you're running a web server 
off your home computer, which is highly inadvisable, but you know, you can if you really want to, then you would need a fixed, a, a static IP address. But if you don't want to pay for one, what D1 and DNS did is you would point your modem, modem router, uh, to the DYN DNS service, you would give it your login credentials. And what it would happen is every time you logged in to your ISP, it would send a message to DYN DNS saying, hey, here's the IP address that my ISP has assigned to me. And then DYN DNS would give you, essentially you could then connect that to a domain and you could say, right, I'm gonna go to this domain and it will simply redirect you to the IP address that was dynamically allocated to you by your ISP. Mm -hmm. Hey presto, I have a quote-unquote fixed-ish kind of sort of fixed-ish IP address. So that was the, one of the ways around it. And there are other ways, but that was one way. And uh, yeah, so if you want to get you know, access to your you know, laptop from home using you know, Back to My Mac or different VNC software, like maybe like Screens VNC or Teleport, or there's a whole bunch of different ones out there. There's two examples. There's plenty. You know, Cy oh, not Cyber.gov, that's FTP. Ah, real VNC, hmm, tight VNC, loose VNC, whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, that's that. So there you go. But the bottom line is the, the downside, though, is you're relying on a third-party service to provide you that access. And then eventually, DIY and DNS got got take got wise, got smart. I don't know, got greedy. No, probably not. They have every right to earn money to sustain their existence, and that's fine. It's just that I didn't need the service that much because I found another way, which we'll talk about later. Anyway, it solved the dynamic problem as it was. So there you go. So that's a bit about ISPs and that last mile connection. Not going to go into too much more detail about that. And the reason I'm not is because there is so much more still to talk about. But before we do, I'd like to talk about our first sponsor. And that is lynda.com. Now, lynda.com is for problem solvers, for curious and people who want to make things happen. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, audio, and lots and lots more. Way too many to list here. Now, they have an enormous library. You might even say gargantuan of titles that you can choose from with new courses added each and every day. And that makes sure that their library is relevant and up to date. Now, Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world. That's no exaggeration. And has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual, visual design, business, and software training as well, like Excel, WordPress, Photoshop. They work directly with experts from many different industries and software development companies themselves. And that allows them to provide you with timely training. Often, the same day, the newest release becomes available so that you know you have the latest information the moment that you're most likely to need it. Now, their, their, their tutorials are nothing at all like the homemade ones you might find on YouTube. And I have found with those that sometimes if you're lucky, maybe if you're lucky, you might find a little snippet buried, unindexed somewhere in the middle of the YouTube clip that tells you what you actually need to know. But lynda.com make high quality, easy to follow, and well-indexed. See, that's the big thing for me is the indexing. So you can find out exactly that piece of information you want to know. It's indexed. And their video tutorials have transcripts. They're broken down into easily searchable sections. And the bite-sized piece approach makes it very easy to stop and pick up wherever you left off, whenever you need to, so you can learn at your own pace, in your own way, and in your own time. Now, whether you're a complete beginner with no knowledge at all about the subject in question, or you've been a moderate to an advanced user looking to brush up on the latest version of whatever software you're using, lynda.com has courses that span that entire range of experience. 
you can learn on the go as well. Since lynda.com has iPhone, iPad, and Android apps, they also support playlists. They provide certificates as well as evidence when you complete courses. And if you're on LinkedIn, you can publish them directly to your profile. Many, many years ago, I left Windows behind as much as I could anyhow, because I still use it at work, but never mind that. And I switched to a Mac and I've been using one ever since. But I got stuck into lynda.com's Tiger the Basics tutorial. I followed up then with Leopard's uh, new features and essential training the next year. But that was I'm getting close to a decade ago now. Now, lynda.com, therefore, they've been around a very long time. They're not a new thing and they've been around for so long because they are so good. Now, some interesting courses available right now include Excel 2013 Power Shortcuts, always handy to know, and if you're a regular listener to the show, you know how much I love Excel. Another interesting uh, automation-related course uh, called Up and Running with If This Then That, if you're into IFTTT. Now, there's also courses on WordPress, Photoshop, Google Drive, Google Sites, SEO, Fundamentals, if that's your sort of thing. There really is something for everyone. Now, a Linda.com membership will give you unlimited access to all of that stuff on hundreds of topics for one flat rate, and that's great. One flat rate. Whether you're looking into becoming an, uh, to become an industry expert or if you're just passionate about a hobby or you want to learn something new, you can visit lynda.com slash pragmatic and sign up for a free 10-day trial. It's free to try, and once you do, you'll see exactly what I'm on about and why I think it's so good. Thank you once again to lynda.com for sponsoring Pragmatic. Okay, next, let's talk about the stack. This is when you say, what stack? It's getting tall. <laughs> what? I'm the talking stack. about the stack. Pancakes. The pancake stack. All right. Oh. Let, 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 let's, let's go back to the, let's sure go back stack. To the ad read and, and, and restart. <laughs> no, we're not restarting it. No, 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 no. That was no. a terribly bad joke. <laughs> I don't care. Long stack, short stack, medium stack, TCP, IP it was, stack. It was worse than my usual. <laughs> worse than your God. There is no worse than usual. TCP IP stack, y'all. Now then. Okay, that's better, isn't it? Okay, so TCP IP stack. So we talked before about the development of TCP IP, and that was in the early, um, late 70s, sorry, and the implementation of ARPANET ran out in 1983 when they switched to TCP IP, and it is the standard that we continue to use today. However, there's a model uh, that you may have come across called the OSI model. And the OSI model uh, is a very handy way of thinking about uh, different layers of the internet. And there's lots of references to the OSI model, but technically TCP IP does not have as many layers. So the OSI model has seven layers. The TCP IP layer combines some of those to have four layers, but it's intentionally less rigid, which is why TCP IP, I think generally it's accepted because it's less rigid is far more popular um, to describe in these terms. So anyway... Not going to talk too much about the OSI model or reference it. I'll only reference it where it's relevant, sticking with TCP/IP. So the four layers in a TCP/IP layer stack are the application layer, the transport layer, the network layer, and the data link layer. So, what the hell does that mean? A layer in the stack refers to the set of protocols that are used, whether they are hardware or firmware or software, whatever you want to think, however you want to think about it, those different layers control how data is handled. And when I say handled, it could be the, the lowest level of, you know, what voltage this is, uh, indicating what this what, what a one is, what a zero is, uh, all the way up to, you know, this application is requesting ASCII character, whatever, from this site. 
you know, and it's encapsulated in a packet, and that packet switched through blah blah blah. So every layer of those mo of the mo of the uh, TCP/IP stack has a specific purpose. So we're going to talk about each of those layers in turn. Uh, so we'll start at the top and work our way down. So the very top layer and uh, the application layer in TCP/IP is actually the amalgamation of three separate layers in the OSI model. So the OSI model starts with the application layer. At the top, it then calls a presentation layer and a session layer. But in TCP/IP, they just bundle it together and call that the application layer. And the reason they do, I think, is because session and presentation are all essentially subsets of an application. And when I say an application layer, I'm talking about now the the protocols that, that operate this layer, the ones that we're all familiar, I think most of us are familiar with, like HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol, FTP, File Transfer Protocol, SMTP, which is the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, and SNMP, Simple Network Management Protocol. And I did warn you that there are a lot of acronyms and that, there you go. So, transport layer, next one down. Essentially, the transport layer has two primary protocols and this is where we mention our good friend TCP the transmission control protocol but there's another one UDP which is the user data datagram protocol <sighs> it's all about the protocols y'all so TCP what it does is it'll take the data from the application layer and it'll break it down into the quote-unquote correct sized pieces but it'll handle the release of those pieces onto the network it handles the acknowledgement of received packets and manages resends of lost packets if there's timeouts for said sent packets. Now, UDP, on the other hand, is a bit more streamlined. And by streamlined, I mean careless. And by careless, I mean it just doesn't care quite as much. And that's the way to think about it. Because it doesn't really take any measures to ensure the data sent is actually received by the target host. It's like, send it into the void, baby. See you later. Now, predominantly... It's useful for lower bandwidth, lower priority tasks like streaming audio and video, you know, including Skype and VoIP, you know, where if you lose a small number of packets of data, you're still going to be able to figure out what's going on. Mind you, you know, the discerning person would say, I need every last bit or it's just not right or something. I don't know what people like that might say, but that might, they may say that. Uh, anyway, so yeah, UDP is generally frowned upon for anything other than streaming. There's probably other applications for it, but that's the most common one that I'm aware of. Yeah. Okay, network layer, uh, also referred to as the internet layer. Anyway, and that's how packets are actually routed around a network, figuring out how to reach the correct destination. The, then, of course, there's the data link layer. And it's also referred to as the network interface layer. But in the OSI model, it's actually two separate layers. The data link layer, again, they, you know, same name, but also the physical layer. And the physical layer is literally the voltage level. So voltage this, current that, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I think that the TCPIME model is better is because, it again, it, it can combines those levels of the OSI model that make the most sense because they normally get grouped together. Because ordinarily, the physical layer and the data link layer uh, are combined anyway. Okay, So the basic structure of the data as well as the voltages kind of go hand in hand in terms of their implementation. So I think that that makes sense. So those are the basic four groups and a little bit about each of them. So now it's time to talk about the data link layer of Ethernet. 
which is essentially the building block of all networking that, that the internet is built on. But the data link layer, the data link layer level, the level, the linking level layer of the data link, lots of L's. Okay, uh-huh. so in the OSI um, context, the physical layer of Ethernet didn't start out as those pretty blue, is it pretty? Well, they're blue anyway, Ethernet cables that we think of today, those Cat5 patch leads, whatever you want to call them. It actually started out as black, typically, coaxial cable. Have you ever seen a coaxial cable Ethernet uh, network, Vic? I have. And how did it strike you? Um, Well, aside from the connector on the end, it looks like any other coax cable. But was it cool? (laughs) (laughs) Um... Did you walk up to it and say, man, that's some pretty cool coax you got there? I, I, I do recall thinking, well, that looks much easier to connect than the way we have to screw that thing onto the back of the TV. Yeah, yeah. I'll admit, first coaxial um, Ethernet network I saw at uni, uh, I, what struck me about it was uh, how shiny it was because the parts that you could see the majority of where the coax would come out of the cable duct uh, out to the back of the computer and we're going to a shiny T-piece and then out the shiny T-piece sometimes into a bus terminator. All of it was a shiny silver, either BNC connectors on a T-piece or BNC connector into the back of the computer network interface card. It was all shiny. So I actually saw, saw that and thought, oh, that's cool. And then, of course, back it's in the early sparkly. days... sparkly. <laughs> yeah, very sparkly. And back in the <laughs> days when I was still learning about how the stuff worked, every now and then I'd be like, oh, this end bit, the uh, Terminator, this end bit comes off. Oh, cool. Take it off. Oh, that looks cool. Yeah, and then down the other end of rail computers, people would say, hey, um, something just happened to my data transfer. I'm like, uh, quickly and surreptitiously put that back on again. Whoops. Sorry. Yeah, they, 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 they tend to <laughs> frown on that. <laughs> Whoopsie doodle. Anyhow, bottom line, thank you, Ned Flanders, um, for that. Anyhow, so yes, uh, I've kind of given away some of that. So, given away, given away? No, already talked about it before I was going to talk about it, but it's down on my list to talk about it, which is BNC connector. So, BNC is just a kind of connector. It's very typically used on coaxial cable. The funny thing is that the coaxial cable that they used, it was they typically used 50-ohm coax. And the best part about 50-ohm coax is that's just the same kind of coax that you use in CB radio. And on um, and on our, and amateur radio for, uh, for radio applications, uh, seventy-five ohm is actually far more common uh, back in the days of, uh, of television coaxial cable. I guess some TVs still use coaxial cable, so seventy-five ohm was the standard for TVs for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I'm not talking about the open ladder line, which is three hundred ohm, and that's balanced, and this is unbalanced, and never mind that. So, the attractions of coaxial cable. Why did they start with coax? Any ideas, suggestions, thoughts, comments? Um, I don't know. All right, fair enough. It's it <laughs> maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not. I guess I maybe I've been doing this too long, and I think everything's obvious, and it probably isn't. But you know, the the bottom line is that coaxial cable. If you do a cross section of coax, what you've got is you've got a core, a center conductor. You've got a, what they call a dielectric, and the dielectric is just an insulator. So, fancy name mm-hmm. for an insulator. I've got my dielectric in the middle, y'all. And I don't know why I keep putting on that accent. It just feels cool. I just, I don't know. I'm, maybe I need to upgrade my accent. Anyway, <sighs> I think I've had too much coffee. <laughs> this is my problem. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Sorry. It's all, it's all good. It's all good? Okay, cool. 
Very good. Okay, so, uh, right, yes. And then outside that, you have a shield. And the shield can uh, is most often a flexible braid. Uh, depending on the grade of the coaxial cable, sometimes you'll have a, uh, a, a foil uh, over the top of that and then you'll have an outer protective sheath and that will be another insulator. So the idea is that your center conductor is heavily shielded and heavily protected, mm -hmm. which makes it very quiet. Not just that, the dielectric is uh, essentially such a good insulator uh, and such a good... Uh, uh, it's, such a, uh, it's such a uniform spacing between the sheath and shield and the center conductor that it has a very highly controlled characteristic impedance. And the one thing that's really important in transmission lines for efficiency is having a consistent uh, characteristic impedance of 50 ohms. Because what that means is that you can model the characteristics of that line. And that means that in theory, at least, you can get more data. I say in theory. Okay. However... The um, ultimate solution is that we didn't use coaxial cables. We've gone to twisted pair. Why? We'll get to that in just a second. The first ever coaxial Ethernet was actually called 10Base5, and it used RGA8X coax, and that's rather thick, not particularly flexible, probably good for whipping people with, but that's a pretty sinister idea, uh, and it's expensive. So for those reasons, uh, actually was referred to as thick Ethernet. These days, you'd be thick if you used it. Following that, in the mid-80s, came thin Ethernet. Some people called it thin net, but technically 10 base 2. And that used much cheaper RG58 cable, and I used a bucket load of that. Not that I ever caught it up and put it in a bucket, but anyway, I used a fair amount of it. And um, uh, that in my early radio days and CB radio days, RG58. That's the, for the win. So... Still, however, dealing with 10 megabit per second transfer rates. And that's where 10 base 5 started. Hence the 10 at the beginning, right? That was the uh, okay. megabit uh, transfer rate. So 10 megabit. That's so fast, man. Blistering speed. Okay. Now, at this point in time, all the coaxial cable was connected together at the back of all the network interface controllers. So what's the one obvious observation from connecting all the computers to a coaxial cable uh, joining them all together in one long bus. The conclusion is... A traffic jam? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you got a situation that really isn't all that much better than what we have now with 3G and 4G. You have, you've heard me lament in the past the problem uh, with uh, everyone saying, oh, we'll just you know add more data to our Wi-Fi, add more data to our Wi-Fi. It's like, well, eventually you're going to run out of bandwidth, guys. You're going to run out of radio spectrum. It's going to be a problem, okay? Whether or not people like to believe that or not, it is absolutely going to happen. However, if you can contain all of it inside a cage of sorts, like a coaxial cable, that's great. But the problem is, if you put every computer that wants to talk on the same bit of coaxial cable on the same bus, you got yourself a problem. <clears throat> so, ultimately, uh, it was not technically a point-to-point -point link. It was an Ethernet bus, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, however, in 1984, a little company called American Telephone and Telegraph, that'd be AT&T, they created something called Starland, which was way ahead of its time. When I say way ahead, I mean a few years, but still ahead of its time. And it used far cheaper twisted pair cable in order to carry the data around in, well, you guessed it, as the name suggests, a star topology as opposed to a mm -hmm. bus topology. 
And as amazing as it was, it never took off. In fact, it was a complete failure and collapsed and no one ever really used it. Shame that. But the concept and the ideas behind it essentially drove pretty much all of the future wide local Ethernet networks. And that's what we use essentially today. The bit rates originally were pretty ordinary. And maybe this is one of the reasons why it failed. One megabit per second. I mean, really? That's like one-tenth the speed of that thick net or even thin net. You know, give me some thin net. I don't want this <laughs> Starland rubbish. Anyway, you can keep your one megabit per second. <laughs> Shove it. Okay, so it wasn't actually until 10 base T. And that's the one that everyone th that remembers is 10 base T. That came in in the early 90s. So when I went to uni in 1993, I think it was. God, my memory's hazy. Anyway, the PC labs are still connected by coaxial, but within one year, they'd all switched over to 10 base T. Why? It was easier. It was simpler. It was cheaper, easy to install. It was just... It was just better. It only had it had the same speed, but of course, because of the architecture, it had a better effective throughput. It wasn't a bus anymore. So, uh, well, it was and it wasn't. It had the capacity to not be a bus, and we'll talk about that later. So, 10 base T uh, originally used CAT3, uh, which people don't remember, but anyway, uh, the far more popular standard, however, was called Category 5, and that Category 5 cable, uh, essentially, it's a four-pair unshielded cable and it uses an 8P8C modular connector. However, uh -huh. in, tele in telephony, as to say, uh, telephone, telecommunications, the 8P8C is referred to by another designation that most people refer to, uh, are more familiar with, and that is RJ45. So the RJ45 connector and the Cat5 cable uh, has become ubiquitous with wired Ethernet connectivity and has done since the early 90s. So... The early standards 10 base T uh, define different modes of operation, full duplex, half duplex, and auto negotiation for originally, of course, 10 base T, then 100 base T, and in more recent systems, uh, gigabit, 1000 uh, base T. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about all the auto negotiation, full duplex, half duplex, all that, because I don't think it's all that interesting, but you know, it, there's plenty of links in the show notes if you'd like to. Um, and on, on, another, on a, a sort of a sub-note about the amount of notes in the, the show notes for this episode, there is a metric ton, metric? Even an imperial ton, doesn't matter. There's a lot of stuff on the internet about the internet. <laughs> so there is no shortage of information out there about this. So if you really want to know about full duplex, hard duplex, auto negotiation at that low level, go for it. Plenty to read. Um, anyway, one of the other interesting things is that cross that, that um, ten one hundred uh, base T only used two pairs actually in a standard Cat five cable, and uh, the pins that they present on are pins one, two, three, and six. The other two aren't actually used in standard installations. And for people that were being really stingy many many years ago, there were actually patched cables that came out that only had two pairs in them uh, because it was cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. And these super ultra cheap ones, uh, they'd say, oh, I'll just plug this into my uh, my awesome IP phone. And you plug in your IP phone and we'd be dead. And you'd be like, knock, knock on the phone. Hello? Why you're not working? And it's like, <laughs> oh, it needs power over Ethernet. And the power over Ethernet uses the other pairs. Oh, so I've got to go and upgrade to a real Ethernet cable. So yeah, 
uh, beginner's mistake during that transition period. But eventually, of course, like anything mass-produced, they made so many of these damn patch leads, you can now pick them up anywhere you like. Monoprice probably got them. MSY here in, in Australia, dirt cheap, you know, like three bucks, two bucks, and you get mm-hmm. a five-meter Cat5 patch lead. It's like, it's insane. These things are mass-produced by the metric ton. There I go again. Imperial ton. It really doesn't matter. A ton is still a lot. So, high tonnage. Okay, Gigabit, however, uses all four pairs and it also requires a higher quality of cable with tighter tolerances and they specify that you, well, they suggest that you use uh, Category 5E, which is a far tighter tolerance. Now, Mm -hmm. despite this, irrespective of the kind of cable that you use, the amount of inductance and capacitance you get with a twisted pair, it's the same problem with phone lines, it's just on a smaller scale and you're pushing more data. Think about it. I mean, ADSL, maximum data rate on ADSL 2 plus is what, 40, 60 megabits per second? Well, we're trying to push 100 and a gigabit per second. Obviously, yeah. you're going to have a range limitation. Uh, obviously, the capacitance is going to kill it. So what happens? 100 meters is typically all you get. But that's fine because that's all you've got. I mean, imagine how many houses have you got that require more than 100 meters for a point-to-point connection? Not many that I can think of unless you own a mansion or a McMansion or several McMansions connected by a McMansion corridor. I don't know. Wow. I mean, I don't know. Do you have a McMansion? Do you know what a McMansion is? I do not have a McMansion. I do not know what a McMansion is. I'm assuming (laughs) maybe possibly a mansion owned by somebody that owns McDonald's. (laughs) No, it's maybe that's an Australian expression. I didn't think it was, but uh, the idea of a mansion is that a mansion is like really, really big and expensive and luxurious, and you know usually has two floors and it's you know huge amount of rooms. Most of them unnecessary. Most of them unused. Requires um, dedicated full time cleaning because it's so ridiculously oversized. It's a sign of opulence and wealth and all that other you know stuff mm-hmm. that you know you could argue in a capitalist economy is a good thing but most people look at that and shake their head and say whatever anyhow a uh, a normal house is like what you and i live in it's a house with a normal number of rooms that are all got stuff in them some would say too much uh-huh. stuff especially in my house it's a lot of stuff too many stuff toys and kids rooms anyway uh, <clears throat> a mick mansion is somewhere in between you got enough okay. money to um so like uh and and they usually are like a mick mansion so like um uh, it's more of a cookie cutter feel because mansions are typically very highly customized, whereas a Mick Mansion uh-huh. is 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 um, still built by a reputable company, but they'll build lots of them, and there's only a limited number of floor plans, and you know, so yeah. Hence, gotcha. McDonald's Mick Mansion. I don't know. So that at least that's my understanding of the entomology. I've done no research on that one. So there you go. Could be wrong. Ask Wikipedia. Okay. So it's also not related to a Scrooge McDuck money bin. <laughs> No, it's not. Okay. Okay, I'm glad we cleared that up. Yes, we have indeed. Clarification has been sought. Okay, good, lovely, charming. However, if you use high quality cables, it's possible that you can push it to 150 meters, but higher speeds aren't guaranteed. You cross the 100 meter limit, you're on your own. Now, there were some cases that I've done installations where what we, what we did is we actually put a uh, an Ethernet switch uh, at roughly the 100, 110 meter point. Mm-hmm. So I did some factory automation about 10 years ago where we had a 10-100 link that we wanted to get from one end of the factory to the other. Total length of the factory was around about 180, 190 meters. So the computer that they had in the office at the front of the warehouse was actually communicating with a PLC down the back end of the warehouse 
connected to the machine. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to have a look at what the machine was doing, but they wanted to do that from the beautiful air-conditioned comfort of the shop front. And they could say to their customers coming in, oh, look, here's our machine making widgets. And customer would come in, look at the screen, say, oh, look, it's pretty widgets. Lovely. <laughs> anyway, so in order to make this work, um, you know, we put an Ethernet switch in between. Mm-hmm. And because, uh, you know, the good news was that there was a, uh, a GPO, PowerPoint, uh, power socket, whatever you want to call it, uh, that was convenient. And along the way, we just put in a, a junction box for protection and hey, presto, Bob's your uncle and hopefully not your auntie or whatever. So I said, why twisted pair? Um, well, it's cheaper, but it does than coaxial cable, but it doesn't have the control, the highly, the tight um, tolerances. Uh, that you can get with coaxial. But the cost tends to win. Plus, there's something you can do with twisted pair that you can't do with coaxial cable. And that's something that's referred to as common mode noise rejection. Common mode noise, the idea is that if I run two signals and one is the mirror image of the other signal, one on one wire, Mm -hmm. one on the other wire, and then what I do is I am exposed to noise. That is to say, the, the, the cable's tightly twisted together and I get noise on that cable, the noise is going to affect each of the conductors equally or essentially equally. Therefore, it should be possible because by comparing the two individual wires signals, I should therefore be able to cancel that noise out um, through a mode uh, using an operational amplifier. You can actually cancel out the common mode noise. You'd be surprised how effective that actually is. So That's cool. It is very cool. So common mode, common mode noise rejection is very, very handy. And it's the sort of thing that has made uh, Twisted Pair very popular in uh, even in industrial applications. So many Modbus networks, uh, you know, you will just run on, on standard Twisted Pair cable. A lot of analog instrumentation cable is run on Twisted Pair. Straight single core cable in industrial applications for analog signals is essentially not done. Everything is done as a Twisted Pair for that reason. And uh, sometimes we'll add overall screens, individual screens, and this is not industrial automation episode. That's another day. Never mind. Maybe it isn't another day. Who knows? Okay, so twisted pair, not so bad as we thought. Range is limited, certainly, but then so is coax. And frankly, it's a heck of a lot cheaper. And that gave it the edge in the end. So, oh, and it also, um, yeah, I haven't talked about point point yet. Yeah, okay, so we'll get to that. Okay. Next, 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 next. Okay, I'm going to talk a bit about Ethernet switches and point-to-point links, but I think it's it's time for us to step up a level and get a little bit higher than the data link layer and start talking about addressing. Okay. Okay, MAC addresses versus IP addresses. <sighs> so, so you got a bunch of devices, right? Mm-hmm. But you got to know how you get a message from one to the other. It's not just enough to connect them together. Whether they're on a bus, whether they go to a switch, you know, either way it doesn't matter. You still need to know how to get the data to where it needs to be. There's no, there's no question. You need to have an address of some kind. No different to houses in a street. You can't just say, go to Bob's Road. Well, what number on Bob's Road? Well, it could be from number one up to one million. Mind you, that's a very long road. But still, you got to know. You know, Bob's house. Yeah, Bob's house, man. Totally, you know which one that is. So anyhow, okay. 
So what the heck is a MAC address? You maybe have heard of MAC addresses, maybe you haven't. I'm sure most people have. Uh, and a MAC address has nothing to do with McDonald's. So fine, let's get that out the way. It stands for Media Access Control. So named actually because of the OSI uh, layer, because the third, well, not a layer, but a media access layer is a group of the bottom three layers. I think if memory serves, it's the bottom three. Anyhow, Media Access Control is a physical segment address and that it uniquely defines that connected device. Uh -huh. So practically every piece of computer hardware prior to a decade ago used burned-in, otherwise referred to as hard-coded MAC addresses. However, some hardware now has the capability to refresh and modify its MAC address, usually uh -huh. through a firmware update. Sometimes it's stored in flash memory uh, and so on. Some of the hardware that I deal with has them configurable through dip switches and jumpers. Not the whole MAC address, mind you, just a portion of it. Mm -hmm. And some do the same for IP addresses. Thankfully, it's not many. Anyhow, automation sometimes is annoying. So MAC addresses come in three types. MAC 48, EUI 48, and EUI 64. EUI actually stands for the Extended Unique Identifier. And that's IEEE lingo. That's the Institute of uh -huh. Electronic and Electrical Engineers, whatever, them, I think. Oh, I think that's what it stands for. Oh, gosh, something I didn't look up. There you go. Anyway, so the first two, Mac uh, 48 and EUI 48, uh, they're used in uh, Ethernet, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, for example. Uh-huh. So the first two types, they're used in Ethernet, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth, um, just for example, whereas the uh, 64 version is used for IPv6, which is utilized in Firewire and Zigbee, you know, yeah. for example. Uh, more on that later. Okay, so it's all about octets. Do you know what an octet is? Uh, is that a set of eight? Yes. Well, of course, oct, oct, eight, octopus, eight. Yeah, it's kind of a giveaway. But what, what annoys me is that octet is actually just another way of saying eight bits. Okay? Okay. For those that slept through computer class, that's what it means. It's like, it's another word for a byte. But you say an octet because byte might be confusing. Ugh, I don't know. Whatever. So, Okay. How many octets do you see? 6 by 8 is 48. 8 by 8 is 64. This is not rocket science. It's in the names, people. So you got Mac 48, EUI 48. Oh, that's got 6 octets. And EUI 64 has 8 octets. Again, like I said, not rocket science. It's in the name. Pretty damn straightforward. So the first three octets, they're assigned to a manufacturer by a governing body. Uh, in this case, it's the IEEE's registration authority. And they administer mm -hmm. the assignment of the identifiers. And these are referred to as the OUI, the Organizationally Unique Identifier. More acronyms, there weren't enough. So there's a link in the show notes to the IEEE Registration Authority Committee where you can apply for your own. Best of luck, enjoy yourself. In the, in the case of Mac EUI 48s though, uh, the last three octets and the case of EUI 64, the last five octets, they're defined by the manufacturer. Some manufacturers have a method, some don't. Uh, bottom line is they should all be unique. So let's do some numbers, shall we? In theory, and this is in theory, this is not just maximum number of permutations. There are, for EUI 48 address combinations, there are 281 trillion 
potential combinations. Mm-hmm. You, think that, you think that's impressive? How about this? For EUI 64 address combinations, in theory, there are 18.5 million trillion possible combinations. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. However, those numbers are, in fact, BS. And the reason they're BS is because the reality is that a single manufacturer is only operating under a single or a subset of a restricted number of the first three octets for either system. So mm-hmm. ultimately, therefore, if you think about anyone's manuf- one manufacturer who's assigned a single OUI, then you only have 16.5 million possible combinations for any EUI 48 address or for 64 address, you have 1 trillion or thereabouts combinations for a single is that OUI. All? Yeah, that's all, man. One trillion. Okay, so when Apple ships its one trillionth Mac, it's screwed. Um, of course, it's not. They'll just get more OUIs. Anyhow, if they they probably have more than one OUI already. So, you know, and I guess that's the point, isn't it? Larger companies, you know, that manufacture the network interface cards and the chips and companies like Apple and Dell and whoever else, they're, they're going to have multiple OUIs. So, you know, it's, it's not going to be a problem. But, you know, back in the early... Um, 2000s myself personally I actually had a MAC address conflict uh, with some control system hardware Uh, but the reason was that it was actually factory firmware flashable and they had mistakenly flashed it with you know identical MAC addresses for reasons that I have absolutely no idea what they were smoking drinking or sniffing at the time (laughs) I don't know but anyway, and, and it took me a few hours to find it because it's not the sort of thing you think to look for. It's like, no, Mac addresses yeah. are unique. I'm like, this is not going to be a problem. Usually I take d- it for granted. Yeah, exactly. My IP address is different. No problem. It's like, but why am I with the, 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 I'm getting lost packet? What the hell's going on? Why is it just, I don't get it. Stupid. I'm going crazy. Anyway, uh, it was easily fixed. When I say easily fixed, it wasn't easy, easy, but at least we did fix it, which was, you know, just applying a firmware update and away you go. Okay, IP addresses, not MAC addresses. IP addresses, they come in two flavors, IPv, uh, IPv4 and IPv6. And they're represented decimally as opposed to hexadecimally. So you'll see IP addresses referred to in, you know, by numerically 0 to 255, whereas MAC addresses, I didn't mention this before, but they're already rep- they'll always seem to be represented in hexadecimal, which is uh-huh. 00 to FF for each of the octets. <sighs> Loving the octets. Anyway, so V4, four octets. V6, six octets. Anyway, um, honestly, I've covered this previously uh, a little bit in episode 16 where a friend of the show, David Legat, wrote a very nice piece uh, looking into the IP numbering and quantities. I refer you to both of those and we're going to move on. Before uh, we do go on to Ethernet switches, though, just a quick note that there are special IP addresses that have been put aside for things like broadcast messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, usually uh, x.x.1, hang on, x.x.x.1 is reserved for gateways routers usually. Uh, and everyone's favorite, the loopback IP address is, drum roll please, Vic. And, okay, actually, I'm going to put that the other way around. I'll give you the drum roll, but I can't make that noise. So how about you just tell me what the loopback IP address is? I have no idea. Seriously, dude? <laughs> you tell me local host and I'm going to slap the mic. Okay, it's 
That's your okay. loopback IP address. I thought you knew that. You're a developer. You're supposed I, to know I, that. I, I would refer to that as localhost. <laughs> I haven't done a lot of networking stuff. Okay, fine. You just didn't. I yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, iOS. A, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, okay, fine. I, okay, I'm fine. A code monkey. Your code. Your code monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done a whole lot of networking. Okay, fine. Fine. I just I just plug it all in and 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 get it all working and then forget about it. Who is it? Someone said to me once, just set your IP address to 127.0.0.1 and you'll be fine. Then you'll connect to the network fine. Just, I'm like, you think I'm an... sound good. <laughs> you think I'm an idiot? Don't answer that. Anyhow, that's what I said at the time. It's still not for any funny. But anyway, there you go. So, yes. So, yeah, loop back IP address. Stop talking to yourself. Stop talking to yourself. Stop talking to yourself. Moving on. Uh, in fact, actually, you know what? Before we do move on, very important. We need to talk about our second sponsor, and that's Sapient Pair. Now, Sapient Pair have decided after years and years of being annoyed with existing to-do apps when they're shopping, like, like grocery shopping or shopping for anything, actually, they would decide to create an iOS app for the iPhone, and it's called Shoppy. There's a ton of to-do list apps out there, and I've used a lot of them over the years, but going shopping is a very specific use case for a list. And if you're shopping for more than just yourself, then Shopee really begins to shine. I mean, the best way to describe Shopee is it's a fully collaborative shopping list app, and it's simple and easy to use. I picked it up and figured out how to use it immediately. It's not cluttered with options. It doesn't presume that you live in a specific country or present you with 100 options uh, for butter or milk. You just type in what you want to remember to buy in the list. Enter an amount if you want to, that's optional, and it's there in your list. And it remembers what you've entered for future reference, even in the order that you buy them as you walk through the supermarket. So that's cool enough. But then when you share your list by email, iMessage, so on to your spouse, your partner, your kids, and hopefully that'll just add chocolate and ice cream to the list, then you can add, mark off, reorder items in the list as they need to. Anyway, I've tried this in real time. Between two iPhones, the sync happened in less than three seconds, and that was over 3G. But I also love the pocket lock feature. Now, if you're security conscious, like I am, and you've got a passcode set, there's nothing more annoying than having to lock your phone, slip it in your pocket, and then get it back out again at the end of the aisle that you're walking down in the shopping center just to unlock it again to look at the list. Well, Pocket Lock disables the screen when it detects it's in your pocket and it re-enables the screen as soon as it's removed. No passcodes necessary, no fuss. It works really well. Now, my wife and I have used it several times where we've, we used to note things in reminders or to-do apps or even on paper. Ugh. Anyway, now when either of us goes shopping, we use Shoppy. Open Shoppy to indicate that you're about to start shopping and then the geolocation detects the store that you're shopping at. And on our shared list, the other person will get a notification that they're that, that you're about to start shopping. And then if they remember that you they need you to grab something for them, they can tap the notification, go straight to that shared list, and they can quickly add that item. It'll then appear on my list while I'm in the shop, and I can grab it while I'm there. It's brilliant. Those last minute, is there anything else you need? Phone calls. You just don't need that anymore. Okay, so Shopee is free to try for the first month with no ads. After that, it becomes ad-supported. There's no, no risk, no loss of functionality. But if you want to help out the developers, you can, can in-app purchase 3 or 12-month ad removal for $1.99 or $4.99 US respectively. The update to fully support iOS 8 and the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus has been live on the store now for a little while. 
and it features a handy reachability feature where you pull down to add new items. There's been a fresh coat of paint and now you can move checked items to the bottom of the list to declutter the longer lists if you want to. So please visit this URL to learn more. It's sapient, that's S-A-P-I-E-N-T dash pair, as in two, dot com slash pragmatic and follow the links to the app store from there to help out the show. You can search for the app in the store, but if you use that URL in your browser of choice, it will help out the show. Thank you once again to Sapient Pairs Shopiac for not only making my shopping life a little bit easier, but also for continuing to sponsor Pragmatic. Okay, ready for some switching? I I'd, am. I'd say let's switch it up. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. That's good. Oh, I thought that was terrible. Okay. Ethernet switches. So I'm you have really eth- interested in this part. You have Ethernet? Okay. So Ethernet switches essentially come in um, two flavors. A layer two, which is a data link layer switch, or a layer three, which is a network layer switch. We'll talk a little bit more about layer two switches specifically later. But before we do, let's talk about what a hub is and isn't. A hub is not a switch. Now, the funny thing is that when I first built an Ethernet network, we couldn't afford a switch. We could only afford a hub because hubs were so much cheaper than a switch. Uh So, what a hub does is when a PC... I should say PC. When I say PC, I mean a Mac or a PC. I'm not being, um, you know, brand biased or anything. I'm just, you know, it's a personal computer, okay? So get over the connotation that the the connection in your brain that PC equals Windows. It doesn't. So PC on one port sends a packet. The hub then repeats that packet to every other port that's connected to it. Okay? So it's pretty dumb. It's just a hub. Mm -hmm. That's all it does. Connects everything together. So essentially, it creates um, the Starlan idea. Is essentially it, it creates a point-to-point link, and it aggregates all the point-to-point links for all the devices connected to it, and turns it into a shared bus, in a manner of speaking. So it acts like a repeater, uh, which you know is good, is bad, is whatever. I don't know. Bad, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because the problem is that if you've got a relatively large network with a lot of hubs, it'll saturate very quickly with traffic. And the bigger it gets, the worse that gets because there's a lot of repeating going on. Yeah. Okay. So there are very subtly different effects when you compare an Ethernet, uh, a 10-base T network using hubs versus a, let's say, a 10-base 5 network using a uh, coaxial system on a common bus. And those are very subtly different effects, but really it's the same kind of problem. Okay. Now, I mentioned routers before. Uh, Just quickly touch on that. Um, Routers are designed essentially to be gateways to bridge two networks together. And typically they've been used for ISP connectivity, uh, connecting to a business network remotely via, let's say a virtual private network, for example, into a business. Say you're at home, you want to connect into your business. Uh, the company you work for, whatever, then you would do that, um, you know, through a through a router essentially. But hubs and switches, switches are a very specific beast, and uh, as I said, they were very expensive. And these uh, in the beginning, switches were very expensive because they required more processing, and there's a good reason why. I have actually seen a hub come to think of it for quite a while uh, for sale. 
it used to be there for a while. They were, as I said, so much cheaper, and there'd be a handful of switches available in the in the in your IT store, your IT store of choice. Mm-hmm. And now I think hubs are pretty much gone. When's the last time you've seen a hub? Um, like in the store for sale? I don't mm-hmm. know that I've ever seen one. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know you're older than me, so. Yeah, I've seen some in use at some places where I've worked before. Okay, right. Fair enough. Okay, so nowadays everything is a switch, and switches are far more efficient. Why? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Okay. Simple, simple answer. An Ethernet switch learns and figures out which port to send the packet onto. So unlike mm-hmm. a hub that just repeats it everywhere, a switch will selectively send the data, the traffic over the port that's going to be where the destination that's connected to the next link or to the destination directly, either or. So Ethernet switches are good because each link is handled independently. So each port on an Ethernet switch is dedicated to an individual computer, which means that you can you know, control it independently. So let's say you've got a 10-100 Ethernet switch. The, the device connected on one port, you know, it's stuck at 100. The other ones, the next device connected to the next port uh, is stuck at 10, 10, 100, 110, whatever, in alternation. You know, it can negotiate each of those independently without any mm-hmm. interference to each other. It can also handle... Some of the good switches can handle auto-crossover as well. We talk about crossover cables. Why would you need crossover cables? Well, because one pair is for transmit, one pair is for receive. So what you'll do is you'll connect it into one computer, one device, you connect it into another device. They're both expected to be uh, end devices connected to a switch or a hub. Therefore, you you expect the transmit and the receives to be on the same uh, pins, like computer to computer. You mean so it's you, not because PC makers hated me? <laughs> no. So you you would plug in a standard straight through cable between two devices, and they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to talk to each other on Ethernet. In fact, that's still probably the case. But they expect to be plugged into an Ethernet switch, so the Ethernet switch would be the other way around. So the problem was, of course, is that uh, everyone would then buy a uh, some the computer nerds that wanted to go point to point between two computers without a switch and form a private network usually for uh, for gaming like playing Net Doom, mm-hmm. Net Quake, Net whatever, you know, like I used to do sometimes, occasionally maybe, and in automation as well when you've only got one computer talking to another computer for the purposes of data transfer and and so on and so forth using uh, LapLink software for example, yeah, all of that sort of good stuff you'd need a crossover uh, crossover cable. So I good think the ports on the Mac are smart enough to figure it out now, aren't they? Yes, I think so. And most modern switches are these days. They can handle auto crossovers. They'll automatically detect which has got transmitting and which is which is receiving, which is cool and handy. So you can use any old sw- um, cable you like. So anyway, um, switches are good like that. Now, um, speed negotiation. So let's say you've got a gigabit switch, assuming you know we've got. You know, okay, so everything comes down to you've got to have all the pieces in the connection for that to work. So for to have a gigabit connection, obviously you need a cable that's got all four pairs in it, first of all. Second of all, it helps if it's Cat5e. Not absolutely necessarily a requirement, especially if it's over a very short distance, but you really probably ought to. Uh, because otherwise, if you get if the length is too long between them and you plug it in, it's not a Cat5e cable, you're not guaranteed there won't be a tight enough control of the impedance on the transmission line for you to actually achieve a low enough noise to achieve gigabit. So anyway, 
bottom line, use a good quality or relatively short, low quality uh, cable and you'd be right for gigabit probably over short distances, but still. Go Cat 5e, can't go wrong then. Uh, and they're not that much more these days. I think most cables, most patch leads now are, are essentially Cat 5e is relatively standard unless you get the cheap, 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 ultra cheap ones. Okay, so you got gigabit on each end, plus you got a, uh, a gigabit rated patch lead. Then both ends can negotiate and say, yep, my switch says I'm gigabit. My device says, yes, I'm gigabit. And they are happily shake hands and say, let's go gigabit, baby. And you're off and rocking. <laughs> uh, however, sometimes the wheels fall off. There's too much noise. You've got a bad connection or one, or unfortunately the device you're connecting to is only a uh, 100 megabit device, in which case you're stuck with the lowest value. Well, the next, hang on, the highest value that's capable of each end or the interconnecting medium. That brings you then stuck to 100 meg or maybe it's real bad and you're stuck at 10 or worse than that, you're stuck with nothing. So the speed negotiations were the very first things that happens. Once you've got that basic speed negotiation established and your auto crossover has been dealt with, that's when the MAC address is identified. So you say, the, the device says, uh, this is my MAC address and the server then makes a note and says, right, this port, port 10, of on on a me me being the switch me uh, port 10 is connected to this device this mac address and it adds that to its internal um table so that would be self dot port 10 <laughs> the naming mechanism will vary by manufacturer but essentially it maintains its own table uh, with the the port table that shows a list of what devices are connected to what ports so some switches uh, also employ something called MAC address locking. And I've talked about this previously on episode 27. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes. And uh, MAC address lossing, MAC address lossing? locking is that effect whereby you can only plug that specific device with that specific MAC address to that port. Otherwise, alarm bells go off. The communication will get locked down. No data will go back and forth. It'll get to the auto-negotiate. It'll agree a speed and it'll say, oh, hang on. No, you're not my friend. Go away. And in my case, that's when all the security personnel came down to my desk and said, what the hell do you think you're doing? And I'm like, hey, <laughs> sorry. Anyhow. And if you want to know more about that, listen to episode 27. I'm not going into that again. So once all of that has happened, all of the levels of negotiation, the auto crossover, the MAC address has been handed over. If there's MAC address locking, the MAC address lines up. It's at that point when IP addresses start to go back and forth. Okay. Now, when you want to send a packet of data, and we'll talk about IP address allocations in a minute. When you want to send a packet of data to someone on your local network, the ARP, which is the address resolution protocol is used and it's actually based on MAC addresses first, not IP addresses. Because uh, these okay. uh, these switches, yeah, the switches we're talking about, these are layer two switches, right? Mm -hmm. uh, network level would be layer three. That would deal with IP routing, not layer two. Layer two is MAC. It's the actual closest to the physical layer. Well, it's one step above, right? Data link layer. So now there's a great article I've linked in the show notes on how ARP works in nauseating detail if you really want to know. And I encourage you to check it out if you are that interested. I, however, am not. 10,000 foot view, maybe 1,000 foot or even 100 foot view, but certainly not that level of detail. So, packet has destination IP address device B sent from device A to the Ethernet switch. Maybe uh -huh. I should say that again. A packet with a destination IP address, that is the IP address of device B, is sent 
from device A and it goes to the Ethernet switch the device A is connected to. The Ethernet switch then checks to see if the destination IP address is in its table. It notes that it is and directs the packet to that device's MAC address specifically via that port. If it's not in its table, then it sends a broadcast message to all ports asking to know if anyone knows what the MAC address is of the IP associated with that IP address. If there are no responses, it tries gateways and routers and so on. Hopefully someone comes back and says, hey, it's me. And if they do, it's forwarded on accordingly. However, if no one comes back, then the packet fails to send. Now, the simplest example of how you can see this in action is a, is a ping request. Mm -hmm. So you can go to the terminal or the DOS prompt and type in ping, your IP address of choice, and see what happens. If you get a response, then the switches and routers found a path and they'll give you a response. If not, you get foul, 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 the world is ending, oh my God, it's the end of everything. Or something like that. I think it's actually far less dramatic, but still. Okay. I don't know. If I can't connect to the internet, I consider it the end of everything. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people do. <laughs> and that's that's totally and absolutely fair. To is a first world problem. So, it sounds like I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm trying not to. But a lot of this stuff builds on prior knowledge. So, the problem is knowing where to break in and say, well, we're going to start here. So... Now that's the basics of um, the the basics of Ethernet switches, the basics of how that information is routed within a local network. I sort of stopped at the router a little bit. So let's talk now about behind a router, and let's talk about essentially. Well, let's talk about subnets. Now we're we going into the two hundred level classes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Let's see how we go, shall we? Subnets okay. are critical to understanding how it's possible to, for networking to function on an enormous scale like the internet. So, I mean, imagine a world, just for a second, where every single Ethernet switch spoke to every other Ethernet switch. Every time a packet went out, just imagine. It just, it wouldn't work. It'd collapse, right? Mm -hmm. How we reduce that traffic load between every other Ethernet switch in existence is we create subnets, little miniature networks that attach to the side of the internet, if you like, you know? This is like a, uh, a zip code versus your actual street address, right? Yeah, kind of like that. And the access portal to the internet has a single IP address, but the router that connects you to that single IP address then acts as the gateway. And it forwards on those packets, but it remembers who those packets came from so they can pass them back when the packets return. But most subnets uh, will fix the first three octets in IPv4, and that gives you a total of 254 possible devices. When I say most, I mean there's actually a little bit more to it, so we'll get to that in a sec. But, and that's fine for most households, but businesses usually will require more, and they'll fix either the first one or two octets. And that's why a lot of home networks networks are going to use 192.168.x.x. And usually it'll be just 0.0.x or 0.1.x. And that'll be that. How did that come to be is the question on everybody's lips. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Well, it was a question on my lips, but then that's because I'm a bit weird. But that's okay. The IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, sounds a bit like Justice League or something. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. 
I actually don't They're read too many. They're my heroes. That's, yeah, I don't read too many comics, but for some reason that just ITF sound like some kind of a task force, like it's just something that Justice League think, whatever, I don't know. Anyway, they published RFC 1918, which was not published in 1918. It was actually published in February 1996, requesting allocations of specific IP address ranges for private internet. And the reason that they reserved these was so that these IP addresses would never be allocated in the public space. So they're only for private internet or intranet actually is a mm-hmm. more accurate description. So this would mean that the following groups would be put aside forever allocated for that purpose and that purpose alone. The first one and the biggest was for large corporations that needed a lot of IP addresses and that's 10.x.x.x. So you've, you lock down the first octet to 10 and all the rest are free-for-alls. The next 172 dot and the next number is a range from 16 to 31 dot x dot x and when i say dot x and x means any number from 0 to 255 okay Mm -hmm. and then finally the one i've already mentioned which is the one that most people have seen and that's 192.168.x.x of which most home networks are either you know 192.168.0.0 whatever okay so that way, it would mean that you within your home network could have a computer called 192.168.0.2 and I could have my device could be 192.168.0.2. But it sounds crazy. How is that possible, right? It sounds crazy, but it actually does work because of the routing. So let's That's take that. That address is always resolved locally. Yes, exactly. So let's take the example of two computers, A and B. They each have the same address, the one I just mentioned, but they're connected via their respective routers via a, the same gateway IP address on their local network. So 192.168.0.1, let's say. Uh, but they go, they are connected to the internet. You're on your side of the world, I'm on my side of the world. Router A has a public IP address A, router B has its public IP address B and they are different because they're in Uh different parts of the world. Now, let's say they're both talking to a server and that server has IP address C just because I've got to keep using letters in the alphabet. Okay, so PCA and PCB have the same local IP address but they ask server C which has has its own public-facing IP address for a different web page, but on the same website, served from the same server. So that server knows that each packet came from a request via a router at a different IP address, either IP address A or IP address B. That's all it cares about. And it sends its response to that respective router. That each respective router then knows which PC on its network actually originated that request and forwards the response onto that respective PC. And therefore you have ended up with what is referred to in the lingo, apparently, uh, as one-to-many NAT, Network Address Translation. I just always refer to that as Network Address Translation, or NAT, or N-A-T. But its correct full name is one-to-many NAT. And that is the method by which subnets allow you to have multiple identical IP addresses all around the world on intranets, and yet you can still connect each of those through gateways slash routers. I mean, the router is the gateway. That's why 
it's kind of confusing. Some people say, well, is it a router? Is it a gateway? Well, it's essentially, it's a gateway router. It's just, you know, it performs the function. Anyhow, the point is that uh, that's how it's possible. And it works. It sounds crazy, but when you think it through, it actually does work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so far, so cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Now that we understand the basics of routing and network address translation and how it's possible for packets to do that, now let's talk quickly about firewalls and then we'll talk about ports. And not, not the kind of port you drink. Firewalls. Okay. <laughs> no. Oh, obviously, this is an alcoholic podcast. Although, it would be a very different podcast if I drank alcohol beforehand. And all episodes of Pragmatic have been recorded sober, just so you know. Sorry to disappoint. I'm not sure if that is disappointing. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. What is a firewall? A firewall is an access control mechanism or device and that prevents access to one or more devices on on one network from other devices on either that network or an interconnected network. It's, it's, it's an access control device, right? It's kind of like the stop-go person on the roadside yeah. saying, yeah, sure, I'm going to let your message through or no, get lost. You can't, you know, you shall not pass, you know, that's it. And everyone falls to the bottom of a mountain with a big fire-breathing thing and guy got a ring and they throw it in Mount Doom and blah, blah. Okay, two types of firewall, hardware and software. So, routers essentially through network address translation create uh, essentially a hardware firewall. And I say hardware, there's no such thing really as a hardware firewall. Technically, it's handled by firmware, if you prefer mm-hmm. firmware running on hardware, which is you know not hardware. It's frustrating. Anyhow, never mind that. Don't want to quibble about that definition of where that demarcation line lies. Let's just call it a hardware firewall and move on. Any request sent to them that isn't originating from the intranet gets rejected unless, of course, you enable specific port forwarding to forward all requests to a specific port to a specific IP address on the other side of the firewall. That particular methodology, opening up a port, sometimes people call it port forwarding, can send all traffic that's sent to the public-facing IP address on a gateway through to a single IP address or single computer or device, and they'll refer to that as a demilitarized zone, DMZ, DMZ, depending on where, how you want to pronounce it, depending on what country you come from. And DMZs have their place, but honestly, I don't think it's really considered to be the best method to handle things. Sometimes it is the only way to handle things, but generally speaking, you know, most people at home will never use a DMZ, will never set one up. So for mm-hmm. that reason, I'm not going to go any further with it because it doesn't apply to most users. Port forwarding can still be useful for other reasons though, even if you're not using a, a DMZ. Like for example, let's say a while back, uh, we talked about uh, dynamic DNS. You got a dynamic IP address or maybe you're lucky enough to have a static IP address. Lucky, rich, whatever, I don't care. Maybe you got you got a way of connecting to the public IP address at your home uh, Wi-Fi modem router, whatever it might be. Connecting to a computer sitting behind the network, hiding there happily, protected relatively from the internets and all the dangers lurking. So you want to connect VNC to that. Well, 
If you just connect up most modems, it's not gonna work. You need to actually forward on the correct ports for VNC traffic in order for it to find that computer. When you do so, you have to do it to that specific computer because otherwise how else does a, the router know where to route the, the traffic to? And unless the traffic originates from inside the network, how would it know? You, can, yeah. you, know, you, you can't just say, here, send it to computer that one. It's like, yeah, which one? That one. No, 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 no. Seriously. Seriously? Which one? That, <laughs> that the, the one one. No, seriously? No. So anyway, mm, enough about that. Software firewalls. Now, they screen traffic potentially at a lot of different layers of the application stack, operating system level, application level, various levels in between, or whatever. But let's take the example of OS 10. Why? Because, well, I just can. Anyway, there's something called the IPFW. And that actually came with OS 10 as part of FreeBSD. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, sorry, that IPFW stands for Internet Protocol Firewall. And uh, But there's a second firewall in OS X that they refer to as the application firewall. Now, both of these can block TCP IP layer requests um, from specific ports or you know, addresses, etc., whatever you like, you know, all sorts of things, some more configurable than others. It's beyond the scope of this discussion, but let's just say that at an individual device level, you can also have a firewall. Windows has a firewall as well introduced in Windows XP, if I remember correctly, maybe Windows 2000, I think may have had it. Anyway, so that's just briefly about firewalls. Access control devices to screen traffic from coming into your device. So let's say you're on the outside and you go and you're trying to uh, access someone else's computer from behind a firewall. All you'll get is, you know, there is no, there is nothing. You'll eat static, you'll get no response or you'll get, you know, destination host is unreachable or something like that, you know. Maybe you'll get a ha-ha, thanks for trying, get bent. I don't know. Whatever. It just won't work. <laughs> okay, good, lovely. Ports, ports, ports. People talk about ports. And, well, because, I mean, well, why not? Anyway, IP addresses on a machine may well identify it as a unique device the IP layer, but it's actually kind of handy to further subdivide the messaging into a virtual series of virtual constructs that's referred to as ports. Now, I don't really see the difference not really, but between calling something a port and calling something, you know, like adding an extra dot and adding an extra octet at the end of an IP address. Mm-hmm. I don't really see the difference. I mean, okay, it's not an octet actually, but it's more than that. It's bigger than an octet. But the point is, and if I recall correctly, it's a word, so it's a 16-bit number. But the point is that ports are, you know, essentially a, a virtual construct that it's it's supposedly analogous to physical ports on an Ethernet switch or on a computer like serial ports and so on. Like data for, from this thing comes through port one, this comes through port two and so on and so forth. But really, they're completely virtual. They're not real. But people talk about ports, they are still important. So think of it like an IP address is the street and the port is the house number. Think of it that way, if it helps. I mean, it may not help, but if it does help, there you go, think of it that way. So some common ports that you will have heard of, port 80 or port 8080, uh, that is 8080. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's for um, web, HTTP requests. Other common ones like uh, FTP is uh, port 21, uh, HTTPS, uh, which is secure HTTP, which we'll talk about later, that's uh, 443, 
uh, SMTP is port 25. Uh, there's lots and lots more. And there's actually a link in the show notes if you really care what those ports are, like the ones for VNC, if you really care, look it up. You know, but essentially, yeah, those are ports. So I'm talking about port forwarding. I'm talking about all FTP requests. Let's say you would forward port 21 to this IP address and it would then forward all internet uh, all requests from the internet to your public facing IP address to whatever private IP address on the other side of the firewall for that port and that port only. Or forward all your damn ports to the DMZ and watch it burn. Whatever. Okay. <sighs> you know, I reckon we're about halfway through. <laughs> all right. How long are we been going? It's a short show. Gotta keep trucking. DHCP versus fixed IP. Gotta mention it. Because, well, it, you just got to mention it. So fixed IP in the bad old days, man, IP addresses, they were sent by jumpers, you know? And if you're an Aussie, or I think actually the British also use the word jumper, um, sweater. It's not, a, it's not a sweater. It's not a cardigan. No, I mean jumpers as in, you know, little physical jumpers, um, like a little shorting bar, if you like. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if you're more modern, because it's nothing worse than changing a jumper inside a computer and then dropping the jumper. And it's like, oh man, where did it go? Oh, damn it, it got, got jammed up in a fan, cooling fan. Whoops. Oh, now it's making a cool noise going bing, 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 bing. I speak from experience. Anyway, dip switches are better, but they still sucked, let's face it. Everyone, no one likes jumpers. No one likes dip switches. They suck. As I said previously, some control system hardware I still deal with every day still uses jumpers and dip switches, and it sucks. Anyway, thankfully, in 1993, uh, the Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, DHCP, uh, came about whereby IP addresses could be allocated dynamically when required and then reallocated to other devices when they were no longer in use. So DHCP or the DHCP server technically is usually controlled these days by the router. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but yeah. You know, so technically you could actually have a, a modem, a separate modem, a separate router, and you could have a separate server and you could you know, have the modem just do the, do the connection to the internet uh, and you handle your fixed IP and you could have a Wi-Fi router handling all of the routing and you could have the server handling the DHCP if you wanted, I suppose. But the far more common use case is you get this crummy box from your damn telco or you know whoever it is, your ISP, and they say, here, plug this in and you won't have any problems at all, thumbs up. And you'll plug it in and it'll do all your DHCP for you and your Wi-Fi and you know, your ADSL or your, your Fios or whatever you've got, and it'll just you know still be a headache. Anyway, so on the device side, it's settings like uh, obtain your IP address automatically in Windows land, uh, slightly different in OS X. It just means it's using DHCP. So the benefit of using DHCP is you can never accidentally define the same IP address twice on the same network, which would be bad because then you would get duplicate packets, packet collisions, lost data, and you would be very sad. And we're trying to avoid sadness. Anyhow, uh, DHCP, though, it can give you more than just the IP address. It can also give you a whole bunch of other network information, which we will talk about a little bit further on. And if you want to know more about how the ins and outs specifically of how DHCP works, 
then there are some links in the show notes for further reading if you really are interested. Okay, dear me, we're moving our way up the stack. But before we work our way too much further up the stack, let's talk a little bit about, and not too much, but a little bit, about ISP, inter-ISP communications. Okay. So up until now, we've been talking about local intranets. We kind of briefly touched on uh, the fact that packets go out to a server on the internet and our ISP is connected to the internet. But what the hell is the internet exactly? The internet is really just a bunch of switches connected together. There's really not much else to it from a theoretical point of view. Practically speaking though, ISPs talk have to shuffle the data around somehow and how they do that, um, they do that via backbones or what we refer to as backbones. Now traditionally, backbones were all uh, circuit switched data. Now I've talked about circuit switched data previously and the idea is packet switch versus circuit switched is that you know if I'm talking on a phone, I pick up the phone on one end, I get a time slot in a digital backbone and that time slot will be you know, I get this channel on this T1 and it's assigned to my phone call 64 kilobits per second and it's reserved for me. And that circuit is switched all the way through the network. No matter which telephone exchange I go through, I get allocated a slot. Once I've got a slot allocated on all of my connections to the destination, the destination will ring. Ring, ring. Got it. Yo, Vic, what's up? Nothing's up. Nothing's up. There you go. Thanks. Bye. And I hang up. And then those circuits are then put back into the pool and someone else can use them. But during the duration of that call, that circuit is ours, right? One up, one down, fixed rate, always ours, whether we talk or whether we don't. Horrendously inefficient because when you think about it, a lot of the time you speak is not talking. It's pausing. And I mean, let's face it, <laughs> that's why um, Marco Ahmet's um, smart speed works so well because on podcasts and an overcast no they're not a sponsor yes it is a good app uh, and oh well i mean smart speed is <laughs> is awesome you get addicted to smart speed but it's, i'm just saying yes. and then you listen to them talk live and they're like geez they're talking slow <sighs> anyway never mind that thanks marco for that unintended side effect of your um <laughs> software anyway um so not talking about podcasting apps but uh, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, there are the bearers, the, the 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 backbones, all used to be circuit switched, and eventually there were better methods determined. So uh, some of them, the, the the technology of the carrier itself, like the fiber optics, the so the fiber optic line drivers and receivers that I came across, what they will do is they would take all of the data in different formats, be circuit switched data, packet switched data. And they would uh, essentially combine them into uh, essentially a wavelength division multiplexed fiber optic uh, transceiver. That's a big mouthful. The name of the product I came across when I was working at Nortel wasn't part of the wireless division, but our equipment connected into it uh, was something called OC192. There's a link in the show notes if you're interested. It was cutting edge at the time. It was a 10 gigabit SDMS WDM fiber optic uh, interface. Uh, and that could handle 16 different wavelengths mm-hmm. per fiber core. That was, you know, cutting edge at the time. Uh, and you started to get, started to get, you know, into wavelength interference and all sorts of other problems after that and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, that was 1997 cutting edge stuff. It supported some uh, Sonnet 
uh, SDH, which is, uh, sorry, Sonnet is Synchronous Optical Network and SDH is Synchronous Digital Hierarchy. And that formed, uh, so Sonnet is the basis for um, for POS, which is uh, Packet Over Sonnet. Jeez, I hate it when they do that. You know, it's like it, there's, a, it's a, there's an acronym inside an acronym. So it's like POS as opposed to POSONET, which I guess POSONET, POSONET or POSONET doesn't really work. So I guess it's POS. But POS also stands for point of sale. So anyway, whatever. Blame Cisco. Cisco had a, a played a big role in development and pushing that to the market uh, for, um, for POS. Most internet traffic carried over backbones uses POS in one form or another. I mean, it's much more complicated than that technically, but essentially imagine your traffic, your packets that you're sending and trying to receive and a million other packets being routed over a subsea cable between the continents, extracted and fanned and switched out at the other end by a bunch of ethernet switches and routers. The routes can be learned via the broadcast method or they can be manually configured for load sharing or balancing. So you can say, I want all IP addresses from this, uh, this main hub to this main hub to go via this link or this other link. Or you can just let them learn either way. Link goes down, I want a redundant link. Anyway, all of this load sharing, load balancing, clustering, how ISPs balance their, their traffic loads and all that, it's actually really fascinating but for the average individual, suffice to say, yes, it's done. Yes, it exists. No, I'm not going to go any more detail about it because I don't think it's interesting enough. Well, I do think it's interesting, but not interesting enough. So for the, for the for this discussion. So there's a really interesting article that I've linked to on the show notes called Internet Cost Structures and Interconnection Agreements. And it's a, it's a really fascinating historical progression of how ISPs have evolved with connection agreements from the circuit switch days um, through ATM frame relay and all of the uh, you know packet over sonnet and all the different um, technologies have developed and evolved into how they've evolved their connection agreements, their their line leasing contracts, and how all that's passed on to us, the end consumers of uh, of their services, such that we just pay you know a fixed rate. And of course, some people see the raw figures and say, "But that's ridiculous. They're ripping us off." And it's like, "Yeah, well, the last mile is quite expensive to maintain. Plus, you got to deal with people, and that's always expensive because people complain all the time, like me." Anyway, okay. It happens. It happens a lot, indeed. All right. DNS. DNS. DNS is our friend. Yes. Because we human beings don't like numbers. Because our brains don't like numbers. Unless you're some kind of mathematical genius. But, or you've got an eidetic memory, which is... Never mind that. Okay, so... IP addresses are all well and lovely and a beautiful sight to behold. Actually, no, they're not. But how the heck is it possible for me to remember them? Because the human brain doesn't remember numbers. We just don't. We sit there and we recite phone numbers. I can recite my phone number from when I was a child because I had to learn it when I was at school. In fact, I can actually remember most of my phone numbers from most of the places I lived all around the world because I just got a weird memory for numbers. But I accept the fact that I'm weird and most people don't. And Frank, I can't remember IP addresses apart from 127.0.0.1 because, you know, let's face it, I got scammed once and now I'm forever angry. But the point is that they had to come up with some way of dealing with this problem. We say visit google.com. 
or maybe we say don't visit Google. But either way, we say visit whatever.com. We don't say visit 127.27.27.17. We don't. And there's a lot of sevens in that. That's so. catchy right there. Damn straight it is, man. That's the catchiest IP address ever. I am totally registering that. So how do you get around this? The answer was DNS. The domain name system, sometimes referred to as domain name servers, DNS, same abbreviation, subtly different meaning, solves this problem. Back when I started at uni, DNS was not a big thing. Certainly a lot of sites had them, a lot of institutions had them, but there were still a lot of servers, especially the good ones, if you know what I mean. They were just IP addresses. And once you knew the IP addresses, you wrote them down and you kept them somewhere safe. Because you know they didn't register with the DNS for various reasons. Anyhow, and a lot of the protocols I guess we're using sort of at the time, you know, like IRC or Telnet even, you know, it's just raw IP addresses were okay. It was early days, but it was mm-hmm. hard to remember. So the best way, easiest way to think about DNS is like a phone book for IP addresses. Now, the thing is though, ARPANET actually had a file, a text file called hosts.txt or txt. And, uh, and that kept that information, but it really wasn't that useful. It wasn't extendable, it wasn't easily searchable. It didn't handle a whole bunch of edge cases. So essentially it was abandoned. The original DNS specification was actually written in 1983. So pretty early on, but it was greatly extended in terms of its usefulness in 1987. And in fact, the most common DNS server software in use is called Bind. And Bind Mm -hmm. is the Berkeley internet name domain. That was actually written originally in 1985 for Unix, but it was ported to Windows NT in 1991. And today, it's still the most popular used DNS server software. It is a niche application, I'll admit. So there's probably not much competitive benefit for other people to go and develop a competing platform or product. But anyway, so what the hell is a domain? Everyone knows what a domain is. Maybe they don't know what, what why it's called what it is. And in fact... One of the sponsors of Pragmatic, Hover, is a domain registrar, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, They're not sponsoring this episode, by the way, but still. Domain names are essentially what we would say, google.com or www.google.com or .com.au or .co.nz or whatever. Those are all examples of domain. Domains, techdistortion.com. That's the domain of, uh, of my site. So... Domain names are broken down into segments. Sometimes they're just recalled parts and more often they're formally referred to as labels. They're separated by full stops. So domains are read backwards. And when I say backwards, I don't mean you read them like I mean, <laughs> anyway, I mean you read them from right to left as opposed to left to right. And I mean backwards only from a Western, predominantly Western writing point of view because it's forwards, you know, when you think about it from an Arabic or Hebrew point of view. And actually, if you're interested, there's a link in the show notes about all the languages in the world that are actually read uh, the other way around. So there you go. Anyhow, that's if you're really, really interested. I'm sure someone is. Okay. So... The specific rightmost domain is referred to as a TLD, top-level domain. Common TLDs include .com, .net, 
.fm, and most importantly, .coffee. Anyway, country <laughs> codes... Yeah, well, you know. Country codes are also appended on the far right. And although you can argue that technically these are actually the top-level domain, they are not usually referred to as the top-level domain. They're usually referred to just as the country or the country domain. Or sometimes they're combined with the what's referred to as the TLD and is combined as called a TLD. So, for example, .com.au or .com.nz for New Zealand, uh, .au being Australia, of course, .nz being New Zealand, or you know, .com or .co.uk, for example, if you're in the United Kingdom. So, you know, these country codes plus their TLD can sometimes be referred to as the TLD. So, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. But the weird thing is that .com started out very early on as a lot of the domain stuff is and, you know, you guessed it, you know, you've got ARPANET, you've got Berkeley, where's all that stuff? It's all in the States. So a lot of this stuff started in America, therefore .com typically does not have .us on the end of it. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen .com.us despite the fact that .us is the United States actual country uh, code, it's hardly ever used. Some say it's implicit, but it's also it's also not genuine because tech distortion is techdistortion.com. It's, you know, technically it's 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 .com. .com doesn't tell you what country it's from, therefore it's implicitly from the US, but I'm in Australia. Mm-hmm. Annoying as hell, isn't it? And let's be honest as well, uh, uh, what's um, uh, ATP.FM? Uh, Relay.FM. FM is French Micronesia. Neither of those are actually <laughs> in French Micronesia, Okay. FM just sounds cool because it sounds like a FM radio. Frequency modulation, FM. Yow, baby. But here's the thing, Mm -hmm. right? You don't have to live in the country where that actual TLD country, you know, code, whatever you want to call it. You don't actually have to live in that country um, but uh, in order to have that. But the registrar from it has to be, I believe, uh, have access to the owner who is in that country in order to use that domain, if I remember correctly. Anyway, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong about that. Irrespective. So that's the TLDs. But the yeah. actual domain name, the thing that we think of as the domain name, is is the next component to the left of that. So, for example, uh, Apple's is Apple. So you've got Apple.com. So Apple is their domain. Google's mm-hmm. is Google. Dot com. So, you know, what's left of the dot com? Google. That's I think I name. see a pattern here. Are you seeing the pattern? Are you getting it? I'm it's getting three it. three devices. Are you getting it? These are not I'm three devices. It. Anyway, fantastic. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Now, beyond this, sometimes you'll see the domain broken down even further. And that's generally either by a subdomain or a, I guess what I like to call a service type or a service class. So, subdomains... Okay can be for subject-specific or service-specific purposes. So, uh, anything you want, really, because there's no rules. But uh, for a while, going back a year and a half ago, so before... Actually, yeah, no, it was before Pragmatic um, went indie. uh, I had podcast.techdistortion.com. So, podcast was actually a subdomain underneath uh, Tech Distortion. And I had a separate, completely separate WordPress installation completely separate WordPress um, everything. 
because I was managing the podcast portion of the website that used to host Existential. That was done under its own WordPress installation, its own website. And it was hosted under a subdirectory on the same server. So the same server was actually hosting two different websites. Um, you know, not, not, not a big deal. Technically, it's just that's the way I chose to do it at the time. Eventually, I had a divergence. I do work on uh, like the theme files on one site. I'm like, oh, I'd really like this available on the other site. And then I had to port it from one to the other and it became a pain in the neck with code bases. And I'm like, oh, grumble, grumble. I'm a developer, grumble, grumble. I've had enough. Spit the dummy, moved to Statomic, and then I combined the two and I got rid of my subdomain podcast.techdistortion.com. When you buy a domain, you can usually then register as many subdomains as you want, usually. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. So... Um, I also mentioned, however, a service type. So for example, let's say you've got a service like an FTP server or a web server. Well, if you had an FTP server, you might say ftp.techdistortion.com or if it's a web server, you might say www for worldwideweb.techdistortion.com. But in most cases these days, it's all about the web and domains are about the web. Therefore, you say techdistortion.com. You don't have the www in front because there is no other service associated with techdistortion.com. There just, there just isn't. Okay? Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Got it. Okay. So, bump, bump, bump. Finally, now we are at URLs, a uniform reference locator, which is essentially the name of the website, its domain. And the purpose of that domain is to make it memorable so i say to you visit techdistortion.com and then you're like is that one word is that two words is there a dash in the middle is there an underscore is it uppercase lowercase uppercase d lowercase d is it a is it tech as in uh t-e-c or t-c-h or does he mean technology or yeah it's like so every now and then i do regret my choice of tech distortion but oh well most people get it right but the problem is, of course, all the common words are long gone. They were long gone mm-hmm. a long time ago and they get a lot of money. So people will have this thing where they'll sit on a domain name and they'll say, I'm sitting on coffee.coffee. Why? Because I'm a pain in the ass. I'm never going to ever brew a cup of coffee, but someone else is and they're going to want coffee.coffee and they can pay me $200 million for it. So Good luck with that. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> So yeah, every now and then these guys get lucky and someone, a big corporation really, really wants it. And so they'll pay stupid amounts of money for it because it matters. I remember Apple paid a lot of money. I think it was for me.com and uh, iCloud.com. Was another, I think they paid a fair bit for, uh, I think Marco may have paid a, a reasonable amount for Overcast.fm. I can't remember. I know he paid a lot for their trademark, but you know, people pay money for these things because it's all about the brand. Anyhow, so techdistortion.com, there you go. That is a URL. Technically, you've got to add HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www.techdistortion.com forward slash for that to be a complete URL, but that's another story for later in the podcast. We'll get to it. Okay, all of this, all of that BS, (laughs) just so I don't have to remember 127.34.10.7. So, DNSs, domain name service, does more than just hold that information. 
it does a whole lot more. As I said, it was extended in 1987. So they added a whole bunch of really cool stuff. They store more than just the IP address, but I'm not gonna talk about everything that they store or can store. There's a link in the show notes if you wanna know every single thing that they store. But here's the thing, we'll talk about the key ones, but rather we'll, let's talk about the ones that I use. So first of all, A or four A's in a row, quadruple A if you'd like, A, 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 A. So A or A, 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 A. Um, IPv4 and IPv6 uh, respectively. And that's mm-hmm. the, a domain association. Essentially, it's the most important one. It was the reason for being initially, at least for DNS. And it returns the IP address. So you type in the domain and you associate, your A record is associated with the IP address of your server, which is a, hopefully a fixed IP. You're in trouble if it's not. So that one's the one you want. CNAME stands for canonical name record. All that is, is an alias of one name to another. So you can say um, Bob and the alias of Bob is Bobby McBob. I don't know, whatever. MX, <laughs> mail exchange record. People have heard of these, I'm sure, if they've ever done any mail stuff, mail servers and so on. A mail exchange record maps a domain to a main mail transfer agent for that domain. But the other thing about MX records is you can set a priority. And this allows you to have uh, backup backup mail servers. So what you can do is you can have like two, three, four of these so that if one mail server dies, you have a backup mail server because mail servers can be load balanced, load shared, you know, redundancy and all that rubbish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not want to talk into, not not going to be talking much about email in this episode, frankly, because it bores me to tears, but that's okay. Anyhow, suffice to say, MX Records, that's what they do. TXT. TXT as opposed to TNT is a text record. Now, doesn't actually do anything but store textual information. Well, that's probably not all that surprising actually, come to think of it. More recently, it's been used as a method of determining ownership of a domain. So, for example, when I changed from a uh, dodgy domain registrar to an awesome one, being Hover, uh, uh-huh. I moved across my Office 365 exchange entries. Uh, for example, because I actually, I subscribe to Office 365 and I use their exchange service. So my techdistortion.com email is actually hosted Office 365. No, Microsoft are not a sponsor. Anyhow, um, you'll enter a TXT entry to prove to Microsoft that you actually own the domain in question. After the move is completed, that text entry serves no real purpose. All they're trying to do is to stop other people stealing and redirecting your mail. That's all. And the, and the text yeah. entry provides a mechanism to prove, yes, you have right privileges to that DNS record. So it's safe to know that you are the owner of that domain. Okay, last one I'm going to mention is SRV, short, short for Service Locator. Now, this is, this is simply a more modern and frankly far more multi-purpose entry than simple MX records. Office 365, for example, uses these uh, for, uh, for links, uh, communicator, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So... Uh, SRV entries are um, useful for that. Okay. So these records are held by so-called root name servers. Some people just call them name servers. Yeah. And when a, when a request goes out to a DNS uh, root name server, 
the query is recursive and it's recursive on the on the essentially in the in the order of the domain so the .au the .com the .tech distortion the .podcast .www so they are essentially are recursive through a series of tables to the point at which they resolve hopefully to an IP address that relates to that domain and that data is then returned such that your computers can then say, right, I've looked you up in the phone book, now I know your IP address, let's go, give me data. So, because all of this can be time consuming, DNS records are usually very heavily cached because let's face it, IP addresses really don't change very often. So yeah. admins, yeah, exactly. So admins running sites will specify a different TTL, that's time to live, not transistor to transistor logic to push updated IP addresses and namespace records far more quickly. Uh, but honestly, even with that, there can still be big lags in different DNS servers around the world because their caching rates may not observe the TTL for a bunch of different reasons. Traditionally, you get quoted 24 to 48 hours maximum. However, the reality in my experience the last 12 months when I've been changing servers, I've done that a fair few times the last few, I think we've done it three times in the last, uh, the last 12 months. Um, with the podcast and Statomic and changing to Cloud Shards, for example, and DigitalOcean and all that, it really only took an hour or two and it was fully propagated. And there's a tool uh, available on the web called the Global DNS Propagation Checker. There's a link in the show notes and I've used it regularly. There are others. It's, you know, it's just a, I used it so you might find it useful. It's not necessarily a recommendation, but it, it works, okay? It's free uh, for what I want to do anyway, it's free. And you can check to see how your DNS records are propagating around the world with key root name servers in their list, which has your pretty map of the world and a big red X or a big green tick at each of those locations where a root uh, name server is located. So how do I get me one of these domains? The answer is you go and speak to a registrar, as I mentioned before, just like a previous sponsor of Pragmatic, Hover. Uh And uh, Hover is, of course, one of the best in the business. Now, you pay an annual fee or even two or three or four or five years if you'd like to reserve it for that long. And you can reserve that domain name. Uh, And then at that point, you can choose where to host the DMS and which name service to use and so on. Now, in my personal case, I use DNS at Hover. But for a while, I actually pointed uh, the DNS at Hover to the name service at DigitalOcean. And I then managed all of my DNS entries from DigitalOcean. I had my reasons for doing that at the time, but now I'm no longer with DigitalOcean. I decided to simply move all of my DNS entries and let them be handled at uh, at Hover instead. Uh, it works fine. So anyway, that's who I use. Uh, yes, exactly. Hover rocks. So okay. So right. One of the interesting points to note though is that some people are saying that domains are dying the domains have had their day and there's a couple of reasons why people are saying that there was a whole bunch of TLDs that were released about 12 18 months ago things like dot coffee for example and dot business I think and dot office or I don't know there's a whole bunch of ones dot crazy stuff anyhow those TLDs will help but the truth is that those TLDs don't change the fact that search and search engines, have and social media as well which is a different form of search is form of selective curation Uh that has partly removed not completely but partly removed the need for the absolute need for a domain so a lot of people 
like for example, on, on in this episode, uh, in every episode of Pragmatic, at the end, I tell people about the Pragmatic Show Twitter account. But there yeah. hasn't been a link in the individual show notes for that until recently. And even then, it only appears in the show notes if you have the full show notes. If you go into iTunes, it doesn't appear in the iTunes show notes. And there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that and, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter that much because most people can type in, you know, pragmatic show uh, into Google and say pragmatic show Twitter and it'll come up with the correct link. So suddenly, I don't need to say twitter.com forward slash pragmatic show all one word all lowercase I don't just say that people don't have to write it down people don't have to remember it you just type it into Google or you type it into DuckDuckGo or your search engine of choice Bing whatever point is that do you really need DNS if you want to know about me you can just type in John Chigi into Google and it will tell you and it'll bring up tech distortion it may not be the first maybe it's the third fourth fifth sixth seventh entry don't know probably doesn't matter either way you know it's just yeah so anyhow so what's the point what's the point i'm getting at here i'm, I'm getting at dns is less domains are less critical today than they have been in the past because search is so good uh-huh. uh, that said i still think it's absolutely critical if you have a, a business online and you want to be taken seriously yeah. that you have a domain I honestly, I still genuinely believe that. I, I hesitate to recommend to anyone that you rely on a third-party service for people to find your service. You know, if your solution is go search Google to find us, when Google goes in the tank, you got nothing. Now, I'm not yeah. saying Google's going to go in the tank, but if you rely on third-party services, see, DNS is, an, is, a, is a standard. It's handled by multiple registrars distributed around the world there are multiple root domain servers, all name servers all around the world. It's heavily redundant, highly specific, highly specified, and it works well. Well, it works well enough. So why would you then pander all of that power over to a search engine owned by a company and that company is has proprietary search technology and could go under tomorrow because Larry Page and Sergey Brin decide to you know, go on that flight to Mars and never come back. I don't know. So, <laughs> or better than that, build their own planet and go and move there because they got that much damn money they don't know what to do with. So they'll build a planet, planet building, you know, like slutty Bart fast. Okay. So bottom line is, uh, Magrathea, I should say, was the planet. <sighs> slutty Bart fast, just this guy, you know. Bottom line, though, is that DNS servers themselves are just servers, okay? They're a device at a specific IP address. So that begs the question, how does your PC know where to find the phone book? It's just, it's in the kitchen under the sink. Go look. And if that wasn't I'll funny... i right back. <laughs> and if that wasn't funny, it's because it wasn't funny. So, how does it know? Well, I said before, if you recall, not so long ago, although it may seem like an eternity at this point, who can say? I said it was going to be a short show. Uh, using, uh, be, having Vase passed to it by DHCP. So, when you get allocated the IP address, you can pass on that information as well, potentially. Don't have to, but you can. So, then how does the router, let's assume it's your router that's doing your DHCP, how does it know? Well, that's simple. When it connects up to the internet service provider, saying it's a Wi-Fi modem router, let's say, 
it'll connect up and it'll say, hello, Mr. ISP or Mrs. ISP, not wishing to be gender specific since it's actually not alive, it doesn't matter. So why am I obsessing about it? Anyhow, the ISP will say, we have a DNS server and it is the best in the whole world ever. And it's like, sure, I believe you. Anyway, <laughs> and we'll just use we'll just use them. Because they never lie. Yeah, they never lie. Totally solid. Solid on every level. Anyhow, so it'll just take their DNS server settings will be passed to your router and then to your computer or your device, whatever it might be, iPad, smartphone, Android, tablet, doesn't matter. You know, yeah, it'll be passed on. So that's how you know the IP address of the DNS servers. Once you've got that information, of course, you can do a DNS lookup. It'll get an IP address. And then of course, you are off at the races, as they say. However, let's just say you don't want to do that. You say, I don't like my ISP, although I'm forced to use them for reasons that I will not go into. But yes, I want to use my own DNS server. When I say my own, I mean, I want to choose my own. Well, Google, amongst other things, being good at search, have their own DNS servers that are rumored to be rather quickish, regularly updated, and just, you know, shiny and generally sexier, apparently. Depends on which geek you talk to. No kidding, whatever. Google DNS, what else are they going to call it? Their primary IPv4 is famously, famously, I don't know. I know this. I wonder how many people know this. Anyway, 8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.8.
I wonder how it could be speedy without vowels. But anyhow, okay. So I think, and you know, it's some people say it's it was totally developed as a response to speedy, and it's like, well, maybe speedy kind of gave them a kick in the pants. I guess is that the definition of being motivated? I suppose depends on how hard they sure. kick and what kind of boot. If it's a steel cap, mm, definitely. Anyway. The IESG, and I'm sick of explaining what IESG and all every other damn thing stands for, so you can look that one up yourself. IESG approved. HTTP originally was called 2.0, but then they just said, nah, dot points are so 90s. We're just going to call it HTTP 2. And they have now, as of last month, February 2015, if you listen to this in the in the future, when I say next month, in last month, sorry, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is a proposed... They might still be playing it then. They might. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's been published as a proposed standard. So it is still not technically a released standard yet. It could be months. It could be years. But therefore, I am not talking about HTTP uh, 1 versus 1.1 versus 1 versus 2.0 or what are you going to call it? I'm not talking about that. Otherwise, we're going to be dead before I finish. Instead, we're just going to focus on HTTP 1.1, what it is and how it works in a nutshell, okay? In a nutshell. And this is me in a nutshell. Help him in a nutshell. There you go. Austin Powers reference. Moving on. When you load a web page in a browser, it is called a HTTP session. Mm-hmm. A HTTP session is really a series of network request responses. The HTTP client, which is a web browser in pretty much in pretty much every case, most cases, I guess it's safer to say most cases, will initiate the request by setting up a TCP, which is Transmission Control Protocol connection, talked about that previously, to a particular port on the server. Ports, oh, we talked about those. Typically port 80, occasionally port 8080. Now, a server running a web server application is set up to listen on that port or ports and waits for a client request message. So it's sitting there listening, saying, somebody somebody asked me for something, please. Please hit me up for something. Thank you. Upon receiving said request from the client, the server will send back a status line, something like HTTP slash 1.1200 OK, something like that. Um, with a message with it. Hopefully, it's not 404 not found or something like that. That would be bad or at least not useful mm-hmm. or not constructive or not what you're looking for, unless you are looking for the 404 page because some of them are hilarious. Anyway, the top three server applications in the world, and I mean web server applications in the world at the moment are, can you guess what they are actually, uh, Vic? Web server applications. Top three. Go. Um, well, I know Apache because that's mm-hmm. the one I played with, and that is certainly one. What? What about what's another one? Um, honestly, I don't know. I don't pay a lot of attention to this. <sighs> Your code monkey. <laughs> yeah. You just keep falling back on that one. Fine. Okay then. Nginx. That's the one I use, uh, and a okay. lot of people use Nginx. Rocks. It is very very cool, and of course. Microsoft IIS. And if you don't know what IIS stands for, that's Internet Information Services. And regrettably, I did not have to look that up. <sighs> anyway, so um, just 
out of interest, if anyone is is interested, and if anyone's still listening, Tech Distortion used to run a uh, run an Apache, uh, but when I brought Pragmatic over um, to the site when I went indie, I had to move to Nginx, uh, basically because Apache kept dying. Uh, Nginx handled the really? high traffic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nginx hmm. performs far better than Apache for surges in uh, spikes in traffic, such that when the episode goes live, there's a massive uh, surge of download requests and page requests. So when that happens, uh, Nginx responds quickly enough on a very light amount of server power, whereas Apache just falls over. So I tried tweaking Apache. I tried everything that I could think of that I read about, and it just did not uh, fix it. Switching to Nginx fixed it. Interesting. So, yeah, I thought I, it had a rock solid reputation. Apache is rock solid. It just can't handle just that load. That sort of load. Some people prefer Apache for a whole bunch of different reasons, and what they'll do instead is they'll have uh, they'll do server load sharing. They'll do you know they'll have more powerful servers maybe instead of being a cheapskate like me and running on a five dollar DigitalOcean server, or even better, a uh, an eighteen dollar a year VPS at Cloud Shards. No, they don't mm-hmm. sponsor the show, but they probably should. Anyhow. And my, I love my Cloud Shards VPS. It's running it now, and it has not fallen over yet. Running Nginx. Oh, yeah. So, da-da-da-da-da. Where am I up to? Oh, yes, right. Good, good, good. It's easy to get lost on 12 pages of notes. Believe me. So, servers are typically running a flavor or of Linux or Windows Server. Some flavor of Windows Server. 2003, 2008, 2000, God knows what. Uh, or Linux, like, you know, Red Hat or, you know, jeez, oh, you know, Ubuntu or not not as common Ubuntu for running a server, but yeah, you can do. Anyway, all right. So, uh, so yeah, in my case, uh, Tech Distortion's running on CentOS 6 um, with Nginx as its web server and Statomic is its um, CMS content management system, which is the front end that contains all the web, the actual data. Uh, it's uh, Statomic is now, my Statomic, Tech Distortion is now heavily cached. It used to have a lot of PHP crunching in the background. Now I've got um, a layer of caching in there. It's not using Varnish, if you're curious. Um, how to play, didn't think it needed it because Statomic's got some pretty good caching uh, capabilities built into it. Okay. Quickly want to talk about uh, HTTP and HTTPS. So mm-hmm. HTTPS is... Uh, hypertext transfer protocol secure. So you could argue that you've got secure and non-secure HTTP. Mm-hmm. So secure allows end-to-end encryption between the client and the server. For that to work, it uh, requires a valid trusted service certificate from a certificate governing body. And we talked about this in episode 55 and I'm not going to say anything else about it. So if you really care, go have a listen. Some more of the common HTTP requests at the HTTP layer include get, head, post, put, connect, and options. There's, there's actually more than that, but those are the common ones. And of those, the far most common ones that I've come across are get and post. Yeah. So get is the common, most common request a web browser will, will put out there or say, you know, get index.html uh, from techdistortion.com. And that, that is that is all that'll get sent out. So okay, here's a typical request, right? This is what one would would sort would look like. A typical request for the root page from techdistortion.com in HTTP would look like this. Get 
slash index.html, HTTP slash 1.1. So that tells you the standard, it's a get request. This is the specific file that I'm looking for. Host would be techdistortion.com. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the get request. That's what would go in the packet as the packet payload from my IP address to the IP address of the server that I've then determined because the techdistortion.com will get resolved down to an IP address and they'll go to the IP address of the server via the DNS. The DNS will resolve that. It'll go to the IP address of the server. The server will then get that packet. It'll, it'll have a look at the message payload and it'll say, right, I have a get request for this and so on. Who handles that? Well, it's coming on port 80. So who's listening on port 80? Nginx is listening on port 80. Great. Nginx says, oh, it's a get request. Okay, it's looking at this file. Checks a bunch of things and says, right, I'm now going to package up a packet message in response to it, the get request. So the response coming back from Nginx will look something like this. HTTP slash 1.1200. Okay. Date, blah, 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 sometime and date, usually in GMT. Server. It'll then tell you what sort of server it is. It'll be like Nginx version blah on server operating system blah dot blah blah, whatever. Last modified date, blah blah, some date, and who cares? Um, then e tag is actually short for the entity tag, and that's in hexadecimal. It's actually used uh, to as a form of figuring out uh, cache versioning and invalidation on the uh, on the client side because there's a lot of caching going on. Uh, so that you know, you can tell if the version you're getting is the same as the version that the server has. Uh, content type uh, in this particular request is going to be text slash HTML. Character set will be UTF-8 most likely. Uh, content length, however long it is, the message is going to be in bytes. Accept ranges in bytes. Connection close, and then of course followed by the actual payload of HTML itself. And I mean the HTML because sometimes people get HTTP and HTML mixed up. They're two different things. HTML is hypertext markup language, not the protocol. HTTP is the protocol. HTML is a, is a text markup language. Mm-hmm. Now, I alluded to this. I mean, that's it, right? And the web browser's job is to then display the HTML in a human-readable way, okay? So, <clears throat> and no, I'm not talking about HTML. That is just, I'm not. So, because bandwidth is so precious, and I say that, like it's less precious these days, I guess so, but it has been very precious and it remains precious for many people uh, on, on bad quality internet connections or in places that have unreliable electric supply. And um, <laughs> bandwidth is, yes, bandwidth is precious. Um, so clients will rely heavily on client-side caching and that'll keep the local copies of frequently loaded web pages, images, or any other content so that you don't have to re-download it every single time the page is refreshed. You know, now that's that's usually a good thing because it cuts down the time it takes. It's quicker to read it from the hard drive or solid state drive on your local device than it is to download it again over the internet. Generally speaking, that is the case. But it can be a pain in the neck if the server has an update or a correction applied to their website and although Nginx or Apache is serving is serving out the correct latest version, your client has cached an old version. Yeah. So all caches have an expiry time. And if your cache hasn't expired yet, you won't see the update. I mean, there are manual ways to clear the cache depending on the web browser that you're using. But, you know, it's that way you get the absolute latest version. You know, so it's just something to be aware of anyway. Okay. So that, in a nutshell is from web browser on your device to the server 
and back again how the internet works times hundreds of millions of people and devices. It sounds like it couldn't possibly scale, it couldn't possibly work. And honestly, I'm sometimes I'm stunned that it does. But it does work and it works very well. It's wonderful. It is a wonderful thing. So as a way to wrap this up and tie this together in this, the mother of all damn pragmatic topics, um, I just want to try and um, play the scenario for you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Now I'm sitting at my desktop, my laptop, my smartphone or tablet connected by Wi-Fi, most likely to the internet at home. And I open uh-huh. up a web browser. I type in google.com to do a search. What happens? Your device is connected to the network at some point in the past. It's obtained an IP address, the DNS server settings from the DHCP server, which happens to be your Wi-Fi router, which happens to be the annoying box your ISP shoved into your hands when you signed up, but what the hell, right? Your web browser assembles a request to google.com, sends it to the router, who, having no idea what that actually means, has no history in cache for google.com, goes to the ISP's DNS server, gets a, does a DNS resolve to get the IP address 74.125.237.169, which, by the way, that's the IP address of google.com, then forwards on the request packet, requested packets to, the, to that IP address. Uh-huh. The first stop for the packets is the ISP. And that knows that the address is in America based on its routing history. Let's say that this is coming from outside of America. You know, the UK, Europe, Asia, Australia, wherever. Okay, Antarctica, who knows? And forwards it on to an Ethernet switch or portal in the nearest big city, wherever it's allocated to go next, which then passes that onto a backbone cable across the ocean and comes out in America and passes through a few more switches before ending up at google.com's server at that IP address I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. I'm now ignoring the localized country redirecting, any other local caching, server-side load balancing. Let's all just assume it's one server with one IP address. Otherwise, we'll never finish the damn episode. But yes, okay, I know it's not quite that simple, but that's simple enough. The google.com server opens the packet and the HTTP serving software of choice, Apache, Nginx, whatever the hell Google are using, and I probably should know that, but I don't, and I don't care at this point, responds with a series of packets. And those packets of data will include images, text, maybe some PHP is going to run in the background on the server to serve up something specific to the request. And the data gets sent back to the original location with the originator's IP address reverse translated back to the local network again via the router that it left through eventually. Now, the web browser on your device will receive those packets and unwrap them and assemble them. It'll probably get the packets via exactly the same route, but not necessarily across the internet. Could go a completely different way. You just don't know. Probably in the right order, but again, not necessarily. Some may go some path, some may go another path. But hopefully then it'll reorder them into the correct sequence if that's required. And probably, you know, it'll receive those packets quickly, except if they live at my house. In which case, it'll then display all of that information on the screen of your device in accordance with the HTTP standard. And all it took was your device, a Wi-Fi modem router, your ISP's modem, the ISP's backbone, transoceanic subsea cable, ISP's telco switches in America, Google service switches, and all that infrastructure to make it work. Boom. 
Now have a think about all the software, all the hardware, all the firmware, all the electricities, every single standard required, every single level of the TCPIP stack, not to mention the damn web browser, just to make that work. Welcome to the internet and we're done. Excellent. What do you think? I think it was good. Okay. We made it. We did. We survived. Holy crap. We're still Better on question. the internet. <laughs> Better... We're still on the internet. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I'd say it's time that we wrap this up. Now, before the show ends, if you're still listening, before the show ends, n- next week will be our last show. I have one final, final, super final, totally, I promise it's the final vote. Listeners can participate in if they want to. You can go to techdistortion.com slash pragmatic and there'll be a link in the show notes if you don't want to go to that domain. And you can vote on your favorite episodes of the show. It's anonymous if you want it to be. I'll be tallying the results for the final episode next week. Now, as an incentive for those that are interested I'm going to pick out three random entries with valid email addresses that will be announced during the final episode and they will each get a free sticker sent out to them wherever they may be. Sound cool? Sounds cool. Fantastic. Well, if you would like to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi and you can read my writing and you'll see this podcast and other others that I've made in the past. They're all hosted at my site techdistortion.com and that is a domain, yes. If you'd like to get in touch with Vic, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, Vic? They can find me on Twitter at VicHudson1. Yes. Through the internet. Through the internet. Oh, yeah. And if you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website that's hosted using Statamix CMS on an Nginx uh, web server, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and that's where you'll also find the show notes for this episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. You can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related stuff. I'd also like to say a final thank you to both of our sponsors for this episode. Firstly, to lynda.com. If there's anything you'd like to learn about and you're looking for an easy and affordable way to learn, then lynda.com can help you out. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots more. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to feed your curious mind and get a free 10-day trial. There's something for everyone, so if you ever want to learn something new, what are you waiting for? I'd also like to thank Sapient Pair and their iOS app Shoppy for sponsoring Pragmatic once again. If you're going shopping and you want a great collaborative shopping list app, then Shoppy can help you out. It's ad-free for the first month, so why not check it out at Sapient, that's S-A-P-I-E-N-T, dash pair, as in two, dot com, slash pragmatic. Make sure you check them out, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening, for voting for that and making it the most pop voted for, most uh, pop, most interested in topic. And I imagine after it's cut, the longest episode of Pragmatic ever. So thank you to the listeners and uh, for making me do it. Woohoo! All right, we made it, Vic, and we're still alive. Woo! Yes, all right. Thanks, everyone, and thanks again, Vic. Thank you, John. Thank you, Internet. Yes, thank you, Internet. Oh yeah, the internet rocks.
Do you have a cricket problem? Yes, I have cricket problems. That's what there's, I thought. <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it, man. No, I, I know mean, there's nothing you can do about it. I gotta I do the. Mo- I, get, I, get I the was Monty. trying to determine if you were being invaded or if it was a fan somewhere. <laughs> no, it's a freaking. It's a bunch of cricket. And unless I do the Monty Burns push button and release the poison gas to kill the crickets, I I ain't gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's all good john i know i know it's fine it adds personality and character (laughs) i think i'm nearly dead